Hey Chris, I am in Virginia along a major river source and I am outside in the woods looking for a species of mushroom called Psilocybe ovoidiocystidiata or ovoids for short. And uh, yeah, I'm picking some and listening to your podcast. So, thanks for the content. Also, I love what you said about how you're changing your uh, Patreon setup back to uh, how you had it before. Um, yeah, I, I think that that has is, is really pushed me into wanting to become a Patreon supporter. Just, just hearing your honesty and, and uh, transparency with that. So, keep up the good work. And... Uh, you're going to get one more supporter, and um, hopefully I'm going to get some mushrooms. And I actually see some right now. All right. Bye. Radio Mano Papachango. Mushroom Hunter, that was great. Cool to be with you there in the underbrush. Uh, lots of uh, good environmental ambient sound there. This episode is with a guy named Ryan Freisinger. Uh, he first came to my came on my radar because my close friend Nomi was at a Paleo FX conference, I think, in Austin. And she came back talking about this incredibly smart guy that she happened to hear giving a talk. And then I think he was on a panel and then she went and, and sort of followed him around and met him and, and heard him give some other talks. And Nomi is not an easy person to impress. She's a very, very smart woman and uh, her bullshit meter is very sensitive. But she came back and said, hey, there's a guy you got to meet next time you're in Austin this guy is very smart, very thoughtful, really like works through an idea until he reaches rock bottom and he's worked his way through a lot of interesting ideas. So he and I uh, got together a month or so ago and I was down there with Cassie on our way back from New Orleans, I think. Um, and we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. Uh, his un His undergraduate work was in some sort of animal, I forget what he, what the, the major was, but very sort of philosophical about what is human, what's not human, you know, what is an animal, how do you relate to this, um, you know, in terms of ethics, do you eat animals, do you not, he was a vegan for a while, uh, talking about anarchy and different political systems, and then we get into the nitty-gritty of the conversation, which is about uh, health and um, healing and medicine and shamanic approaches and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ryan is extremely well-informed about uh, these areas. Well, he's very well-informed about everything we talked about as far as I could tell, but um, the, the crux of our conversation was really about 
what is health and, and how to affect health. And um, he's sort of um, an autodidact. He, he, he struck me as, as a bit of like a, a Nikolai Tesla or something of health. He just, you know, thinks about things and, and you know, educates himself and just tracks everything down, runs it down. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, I've listened to a couple of podcasts recently that I'd like to recommend to you. Um, grab my note over here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I was up in Big Sur, so when I was driving back, I listened to a few podcasts that uh, I'd like to to mention if you're looking for other stuff to listen to. First of all, the great king of podcasting, Joe Rogan, I uh, had a guy on named Matthew Walker, who's an author of a book called Why We Sleep. And um, I think he runs a, a sleep lab at Berkeley. I hope to get him on this podcast at some point. Um, but really, check that out. He is he, he had a lot of very interesting things to say about the importance of sleep. And this fits right into my sort of bohemian theory of health, which is that things that feel good generally are good. And that seems obvious as hell. But we live in a society that tells us to distrust our appetites from a very early age. Think about, you know, little babies, you know, eat now. Well, the baby's not hungry. It doesn't matter. Now it's lunchtime. Eat now. Oh, eat these peas. Well, the baby doesn't like the peas. Well, too fucking bad. You got to eat your peas. Uh, Finish your plate. Well, I'm not hungry anymore. I've had enough. Well, it doesn't matter. If you don't finish your food, those poor children in China will die. Guilt trip. Guilt trip. Don't touch your pussy or your dick. Don't touch your nipples. Don't do anything that your body's telling you to do. Take a shit now, not then. Piss now, not then. Not when you feel like it. Like, Jesus, don't believe anything your body tells you. And it persists right into adulthood, of course. You know, oh, we all have to drink eight glasses of water every day or 16 or whatever the fuck the number is. That's total bullshit. Like, how do you know how much water you need to drink? Oh, you get thirsty. That's how you know. Fucking hydrate, hydrate. Everyone's afraid they're going to die of dehydration walking down the street in Santa Monica. That's not going to happen, folks. Anyway... That's a book that Cassie and I are going to write as soon as I hack my way out of this thicket that I'm in with Civilized to Death. Our next book on deck is a book about health, and it's sort of a counterintuitive self-help book that essentially says most of what you need to know to stay healthy you already know, but you've been taught to ignore. And so if you can just sort of refocus on what your body's saying to you, you'll be all right. And this podcast with Matthew Walker that uh, Rogan did uh, a couple of weeks ago really fits into that. Sleep is so fucking important. And you take sleeping pills, you fuck it up. You get high before you go to bed, you fuck it up. You get drunk before you go to bed, you fuck it up. So you really need to sleep and you really need to sleep at least seven hours a night. People say, oh, I, I only need five hours a night. They're full of shit. You need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. It needs to be deep, healthy, restorative sleep. Anyway, listen to that podcast with Rogan. Another one that was fantastic is my buddy Kyle Tierman. You've heard him on this podcast. I really recommend his podcast to you. He's 
fantastic, as I've said before. This one, I think it was episode 101 with uh, his buddy Justin Lee, who's out in Hawaii, grew up in Hawaii, and uh, they talk about hunting and um, just different approaches to nature, what's going on in Hawaii with the environment. Um, Toward the end of the episode, they talk about uh, Justin's daughter, who was born recently, had some medical issues, um, and what that experience was like for him. Just a really great conversation with a very interesting guy. And uh, so if you're interested in Hawaii, you're interested in nature, you're interested in hunting, you're interested in just two good friends having a great conversation, I highly recommend that one. And then the last one I wanted to talk to you about was uh, with Asa Akira, the porn star that I had on this podcast a while back who, if you heard that episode, you know how smart and funny and lively and juicy she is. And this is an episode, it's her podcast. It's the Pornhub podcast with, I think, hosted by Asa Akira. Uh, You can, you know, Google it. It'll come right up or on your app or whatever. This is the episode she did with her boyfriend, Sean. I don't know what episode number it is, but just look for Asa Akira, boyfriend, Sean. You'll find it. Sean is a really interesting guy and, you know, they sort of go through all the things that you'd be curious about, like what's it like to be in love with a porn star? Um, And he's, both of them are extremely candid and courageous in their conversation. They really get into it and it's... um, yeah, it's it's fantastic. I have to say, I felt, you know, the the thing that I love about podcasts is how personal and revealing and um, you know just unguarded people can get sometimes in that sort of long conversation that's not under lights with lots of cameras pointed at them and you know people standing around with clipboards. You can get a real conversation and in fact at the end of it Sean had never been on a podcast and at the end of it uh, when they're wrapping up he was like you know just so people know like when the mics go off like this is the way we talk to each other this this there's nothing staged here this is just you know the mics happen to be on and then they'll be off but this tone and the the depth of the conversation is typical of what it's like for them and uh yeah, it's amazing to see, to have something that personal shared. So if you're squeamish, if you're weird about sex, if, uh, you know, you're uptight about it, then give it uh, a miss. But if you're not and you want to hear, you know, what's it like to be in love with a woman who's, you know, fucked all these dudes and, you know, how how does his family deal with it? How does, how do his friends deal with it? Like, what are the upsides and downsides? And also very interesting, they knew each other they initially met when they were quite young uh long before asa got into porn and then they got back together after so there's that whole transition you know he knew her and fell in love with her not as a porn star but as i think she was 14 um he was 15 or 16 so they were kids when they they first met so it's been an interesting trip for the two of them so definitely check that one out 
Uh, and that's about it. That's all I'm going to say right now, I think. Uh, I'm about to record a podcast here in about half an hour with um, Angela White, who is sort of splashed all over the place right now. I think she won a bunch of AVN awards. She's a, a porn star who's very thoughtful and um, interested in, in sex intellectually. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation. That'll be coming soon, as they say. But in the meantime, I'm going to play you out with a song called Watermelons. Uh, this song is about enjoying life as it happens. It's uh, by Simon von Gent, G-E-N-D, Simon von Gent. I don't know how it's pronounced. He's in South Africa. He's a guy that uh, I met down there. I did an episode with him. He played some, I don't know if he played this song or not, but he played Dream Boats, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Anyway, this is um, Watermelons, Simon von Gent, Gent Band. Make sure you listen to the words, and it's spring, so it's getting to be watermelon time, everybody. Carpe fucking diem. Headphones will help my party. Okay, are we rolling? about what's to come and how it's gonna be when my work is done and all the joy I'm gonna find when obstacles are overcome no matter where or when or who I'm with I'm always waiting for a bigger fish and all my hopes are mixed up in this myth that the best is yet to come This is the time This is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the watermelons in All your wealth Don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself to all that the moment brings How long you gonna sit around and wait For bigger fish to bite upon your bait Some sweet magical idea to wake you up to really being here Happiness is just over the hill over that one there's another still and even when you've reached the peak I bet that you will still find more to seek This is the time This is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring the water Help yourself to all that the moment brings The 
urge to run from what's inside of me Keeps me trapped inside the yet to be And like a stone I skip along the surface of the ocean that is me Slowly I am learning how to sink Beneath the layers of the thoughts I think To the world of what I feel Where there's a chance to make the moment real This is the time, this is the place Let the juice run down your face It's time to bring Watermelons in All your wealth Don't leave it on the shelf Help yourself To all that the moment brings I'm in Austin, Texas with Ryan Freisinger. Freisinger? That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, who I I have a friend, Naomi, who is one of the smartest people on planet Earth. I mean, she's her mother is being honored this week, I believe, Ginger by NASA for having invented the multi-spectral analysis doodad that's on the first Landsat and she's got a communications device that's sitting on the moon right now like Naomi comes from a long line of very very smart women and uh, her daughters have been on my podcast actually her mother and her daughter Naomi for some reason is resistant to being on the podcast but <laughs> interesting <laughs> <laughs> she's she's uh her her humility matches her intelligence but anyway Nomi met you at a was it paleo effects it was at paleo effects she saw a couple of my talks and panels right yeah so she came back to topanga where i live uh and she said there's a guy in austin you have to meet like just and she's never she's never done that before she, wow. there's no one else that she has said you have to have this guy in your podcast so you've got a fan in topanga I appreciate that. Thank you, Naomi. That's very high praise. Yeah. She's, well, I don't know how much you know about Naomi, but she she was like a big lawyer, you know, a partner in a law firm, very smart, very sort of um, analytical mind, intolerant of bullshit, um, but very interested in alternative approaches to health, Okay, which is a tough place to be because there is a lot of bullshit in any alternative world. There's Absolutely. a lot of people who get in under the radar because everybody's rejecting the dominant paradigm. So, hey, you know, buy my snake oil. Um, so she's she's a very interesting. Uh, her perspective is very interesting and, and valuable, I think. So anyway, you uh, you and I were talking before the mics came on and you were saying that you were doing. Before we get into your your work with health, I wanted to to revisit what you were talking about with grad school. Um, you were looking at what it is to be human, is how to distinguish human from non-human. Get into that a little bit. 
So I got into what's called critical animal studies, which was an emergent theoretical field around 2003. And it came out of some of Jacques Derrida's latest or later work right before he died. And he was really trying to look at what is it that makes us human and how we use language to distinguish the human from non-human and how those types of assumptions have essentially constructed this hierarchy where man sits atop it, legislates over all other beings. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of that because I was writing a master's thesis that was looking at the similarities between the war on terror and animal slaughter, and I was looking at the language mm. that was used to both describe animals that were going through slaughter and turned into commodities, and the very same language that was being used to strip what was called enemy combatants at that time of their rights, personhood, and basically exposing them to consumption, but more kind of a symbolic political consumption in Guantanamo Bay and places like that, and the ways in which the use of language renders beings rightless, and then these apparatus of the state that kind of go around that prevent any kind of people from looking at what's going on, commenting on it, and it kind of allows this large-scale economic paradigm to function without without any real criticality around it and it becomes so normalized that it becomes hard to start to think about what is the human part of the kind of the the anthropocene that we're in now a lot of our climate change issues are human problems they're problems of human technology relationships to nature so what i was looking at is what it would take to kind of radically rethink the human so that that human could be more responsive, nested back in the ecosystems, and potentially able to respond to things like climate change. So this was around 2004 to 2006 that I was writing about this. So do, do the – okay, I, I, I'm working on this manuscript now, and there's a section in it that my literary agent has asked me to remove, which is where I talk about the Holocaust in terms of – industrial um, farming mm -hmm. and, and, and I talk about what I say is and I think he, he said as a Jew I'm asking you to remove this and, and I understood what he was saying he thought I think that I was minimizing the horror of the Holocaust whereas what I was really saying is I think the reason that the what we call the Holocaust, although there are many, Absolutely. but we call it the Holocaust. I think the reason it's uniquely disturbing to many of us is that it resonates with what we know is happening in slaughterhouses. And, you know, we talk about the cattle cars that the Jews were transported in. We talk about the mechanization of mm -hmm. their slaughter, which is what we're doing to pigs. And, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then we giggle about our fucking bacon flavored ice cream and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, is so does that resonate with what you're talking about? Uh, to some extent. I mean, there was a famous book called Eternal Triblinka that came out uh, probably in the late 90s, and it's an animal rights book, and it yeah. makes that very same comparison, and it's drawn the ire of many groups. Right. And what I've seen mostly, and you can understand the racial politics of not wanting to sit on the wrong side of the human. Yeah. Um, but I, I've seen in the literature you have, uh, you have lots of feminists that look at the ways in which we even – slice up the animal and package it the ways that we look at animals and the kind of objectification of women um, i do think that the oppression of humans of all especially people of color and all the different holocausts that have occurred out throughout the world largely is made possible by those treatments of of animals and people that are deemed to not fit that kind of criteria right and we, if, we dehumanize we the dehumanize animal. it yeah. and if you look scientifically things like craniometry and a lot of these 
things that have gone on to try to create some measure of the human skull or of some particular human quality that can then be labeled into the animal non-rational category that essentially makes those beings very commodifiable and it allows the colonization or whatever you want to look at the kind of dominant practice that's being played out it makes it possible um, so there's a lot of does it make it possible or does it explain it post facto I, I think in some ways it's both. I think so. Giorgio Agamben, or not even explain it, but make it palatable or acceptable. Uh, uh, I think it, it works on so many levels. So there's a normalization process that's happening at different scales, and so I think that when I say it makes it possible legally, the idea of designating people through language into particular categories sets them beyond the pale of law in some ways. So it lays out the the juridical framework for being able to do certain things to certain people. So so they're gooks, therefore they don't get a trial in the court of law. Absolutely. Or if you look at look, at, I mean, it's very timely in our country the amount of African Americans that have been literally murdered by police on cell phone videos and have walked free without any type of persecution. And if you look at the history of kind of race and class in this country, you see lots of of examples of that, but you also see that going into colonial times, whether it was eradicating indigenous peoples or taking their plant materials or their intellectual property. It's all made possible by this kind of stuff. And there's a philosopher named Giorgio Agamben who came up with this idea of the state of the exception, and he looked at these figures in Roman law called bare life, and the Romans separated Zoe and Bios. One refers to life itself, the physical physiology of life, and the other more of a quality of life. Mm. And there were certain uh, people who were separated from that quality of life, from that right to human experience. Slaves? Uh, slaves, but also, interestingly, there were a lot of these sacrificial figures that were sacrificed for religious purposes that were put sort of in the place. But this goes really back into the kind of Western legal idea or imaginary, this kind of thinking. And so Agamben resurrected that to look at the war on terror and the second Bush administration and the way in which we created these invisible facilities and these internment flights and these blank spots on the map where all of a sudden if you went into one of those spots, you were no longer subject to any protections. Mm. And if you want to get back to the idea of animal slaughter, that's exactly what's happening. So what I saw interestingly is that in many of the facilities, even if there is humane slaughter laws, the USDA allowed the slaughter facility operator to erect a wall in front of the, the, right. the observation deck. So they really weren't making sure that things were humanely carried out. I mean, I would say this is this is civilization itself. If we face the reality of what underlies the costs of civilization, people would not be Steven Pinker and people like that who are constantly you know crowing about the wonders of civilization. Uh, would be shut down because the whole the whole edifice is built upon this celebration of the so-called advantages and totally ignoring the costs and, and disadvantages. Yeah, absolutely. And Ursula Gwen has a famous story called "The Ones Who Walk Away it's from the Omelas." Fucking great story, and I think it oh really captures this dynamic that we're talking yeah. about. And yeah. that's where language becomes really powerful in the way that commodification works in industrial societies. Once you get something and it's repackaged and it's disassociated to such a degree, it no longer becomes a part of that. And yeah. for many years, my response was to be an ethical vegan. Um, and I had made arguments that were now easily dismantled about veganism and, and that being a central sort of human practice. Now I, I just kind of look at the idea of, of enclosure 
and some of like the John Zerzan kind of ideas where it's not necessarily the eating of the animal that's the problem. It's the fact that we've essentially caged it, changed its genetics, bred it for certain ends, and then we're able to kind of practice violence at scale in such a way that dehumanizes us and makes us less able to, I think, act responsibly towards anything. Um, so those were kind of the things that I was looking at. And now that field merged into plant studies, critical. So, and, th- and this, what was it called? Critical animal studies? Critical animal studies. So this was not under the rubric of biology or, or zoology or something. This is a critical theory of literature. Absolutely. So the there was many people that kind of worked towards this, but the main guy was a guy named Kerry Wolf who's at Rice in Houston, and I actually got into their PhD program but chose to go to a different school. He wrote a couple of books, the first one called Animal Rights and Looking at Animals, Human Identity, and, and Culture. And then he followed it up with a book called Zoo Ontologies and was just looking at these various ontological frameworks for different types of beings and the ways in which um, we've practiced this destruction of animal consciousness and these lab practices that don't ever allow animals to speak for themselves. Yeah. And we're, we're essentially walking around that way. Um, and a lot of, for instance, domesticated animals, people don't understand when they make assumptions about the consciousness of their Labrador, they're looking at a neotenized animal that is not fully developed intellectually and is probably much smarter but there's a lot of ways in which we've been creating animals to reference our human exceptionality and then trying at the same time to come up with public policy to stop polluting the earth you know and to, to stop treating third world actors as certain types of of beings and it's just to me if you don't rewrite what the human is you're out of luck because that's our self-referential nature makes it, I think, very hard to go back and behave in ways because that belief system is so entrenched and there's so many economic outlets for behaving in hum- exceptional ways that it makes it really hard to respond to climate change, for instance. Yeah. So so, so did you come to any sort of functional definition of human? Not particularly. Yeah. I mean, as not, since I've gone more into the world of health and the ideas that are coming out around the microbiome, for me, the human is just a distributed ecosystem. All right, I'm glad you uh, said that. That's that. I was setting a trap for you, actually, and not, not really a trap, but I was leading you toward that because that's where I am. I I think the idea of individual human is a fiction, mm-hmm. and and that's why I asked you if these philosophical inquiries or or are really looking at at cognitive structures that that create certain behaviors or if we're just looking back and explaining them and observing them because i feel like something is driving this that's far beyond language or you know whatever jacques derrida came up with and i i feel like there's there's a trajectory that is a super organism that we're embedded within just as the microbiome is embedded within us absolutely and i would say what's strange about the idea of the human is it starts out very as a very religious idea man is the person that has dominion over god's creation right and then what's strange is science takes that kind of idea and then gets rid of the religion and then goes into cognitive science and neurology and tries to draw these cognitive patterns out that somehow separate us and then we rely on human structures to explain what animals are seeing when we know for a fact that there's really not 
any type of exceptionality in nature. It's one, there's niche behaviors, and if you need to see in, in more colors, you do that to survive. Right. If your brain needs to grow, and what I find interesting in what you're saying is that if we look at where our neurotransmitters are coming from, it's the activity of the microbiome and those actors that are non-human, the things that power our bodies are non-human. And so there's a way in which I think we really have to think, not in strict biological terms, but we're all constructed out of the rough, roughly the same materials. There's a multiplicity of forms. And when I look, and we can talk about this later on, but when I look at the epigenetic modifications that nature helps us perform, it's unbelievable how perfect all of that is. Right. And it's no coincidence that we are a distributed ecology. Right. Um, and a lot of when I'm working with people, it's really to tend to your own internal garden. And what we're actually getting to is the idea of the noosphere. Accessing that thinking and in, interpretive and in, um, intentional aspect of nature that's driving creation. And there is kind of a, a, a program at place in some ways, but there's also agency that I see at work in that. But I. I don't at all think that humans are exceptional. I think we're exceptional at destroying things and exceptional of kind of holding ourselves in such a way that it makes it hard to see reality clearly. But having kind of spent time with shamanic cultures, emergent fields around plants, there's a woman named Monica Gagliano in Australia that is doing amazing research on plant consciousness, showing plants behave ethically. They feel ethically. Absolutely. Unpack that a little bit. So it was really Helen Samard is a. She's a person who studies forested environments in British Columbia, and she showed the idea of a mother tree. And when, let's say, there's a network of trees, and they're networked through the mycelia network, again, the idea we are all one, right? right. Um, if there were trees that were struggling and trees that were thriving, some resources would be redirected to the struggling members of the ecosystem because they were not viewed as an individual. They were seen as individuals, but also integral to the success of the whole ecosystem. Hmm. So these plants would consciously redirect through the mycelial network's nutrition. But this doesn't this contradict the, the sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest that we assume underlies all biological activity? Uh, I, in some ways, in some ways. Uh, one thing that I think, and I'm not... By the way... I'm with you. Yeah. Darwin talked about cooperation far more than anybody's admitting these yeah. days. And I think it gets back to kind of what we originally talked about. I think a lot of kind of capitalist thinking appropriates that Darwinistic comp competitive logic and sort of makes that the dominant thing. That's and it's right. clearly not true because it justifies extreme wealth in it. It justifies. And if you look at the difference between that and Darwin's ideas, nature systems thrive on efficiency hmm. and they thrive on recycling things. And the capitalist economies don't do that at all. Right. But this is what you see in a forest. There's not a fear of disseminating resources to a lesser party because those resources are replenished. When that actor becomes healthier, it generates more benefit to the system itself. And so I see yeah. lots and lots of examples of this. But the idea of the human, to me, always factors because we're viewing all that we do from that particular vantage point. So it makes it hard for us to backtrack and say, well, this science that I'm doing, or this theory work that I'm doing, is very fraught with kind of issues, and it's not settled. And it may be okay to add other things to the discussion. So one of the phrases that I like kind of when I was thinking through what would it look like to figure out what consciousness truly is, is the phrase that you hear a lot, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah. I find it difficult to conceptualize any type of identity formation when you're not 
able to have that difference sitting across from you and mm. able to kind of see your fit within a much larger system of actors. And so what's interesting in like critical theory is it's, it's rooted in human humanism and continental philosophy and Hegel and Heidegger and a lot of these very human centric thinkers. And the post-structuralists came by and they were looking really at the instability of language, but they were also really starting to question what the human was. And, and people have taken that kind of in various ways and used it kind of non-productively, but that was kind of the first discipline. But do critical theorists understand systems biology? Do they study anything that could actually help heighten the, the legitimacy of those theories? No. So when I was in grad school, I really was into real interdisciplinary thinking developing the ability to metaphorically read across disciplines and see the similarities and that was something that really wasn't practiced and so yeah the biologists see this but then they can't locate it in culture right because they're locating it in petri dishes and also they, the scientists don't understand you made a really good point there that this, this scientific endeavor is essentially based on religious thinking with the religion moved out but the, the structure's still there the the idea of us and them that 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 you know the the cartesian the cartesian uh, notion that animals are unthinking beings that we can therefore dissect and but again this is western right cuz uh, in eastern Absolutely. eastern Absolutely. science is a different thing there was no uh uh, what, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not autopsies, but, you know, cutting bodies apart. Dissections. Dissections, right, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a wonderful point. So kind of the first part, uh, I remember I went, I did my master's degree at Dartmouth when I was writing this stuff on animals, and I remember sitting on the lawn in a summer seminar on, on critical theory, very well-known critical theorist sitting there with us, and everybody was making fun of religious people. Um, the discussion had been something around kind of the politics of faith in the mm. Bush administration, which was very easy to pick apart. Right. But I sat there and I, we were talking about the idea of formative assumptions, original assumptions. And I was like, we really don't have anything better on the science side for that original. We have Darwin, where you have sort of Western evangelical Christian ideas that are also heavily edited kind of Gnostic ideas, right? So there's that, but then you're right, when you look at other cultures, Strangely, the animal still has a kind of impoverished position in Buddhism. You know, you look at the atonement for a badly lived life right. as a reincarnation as yeah. a cockroach or a varmin or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But generally speaking, like you go to India, the pigeons are sacred. Hmm. The cows are sacred. There's at least an idea that if I'm eating a being, that being does have consciousness, meaning, yeah. has its own ontology, has its own right to life, and it has its own life that it's unfolding. And so you yeah. don't see that in the sciences. And interesting that we can get into later some of the concepts that I think are radical in terms of medicine that we completely shit on here in the United States are easily accepted in that culture when there are multidimensional types of medicine like homeopathy because they have a totally different and more inclusive worldview, more religious tolerance. Like, So you see a much more robust science. Right. Um, but definitely I would say that animals in indigenous cultures certainly were they consumed, yes, but they were also at the same time almost worshipped. Yeah. And there was a, a respect, but there was also always violence. That's kind of a point that maybe isn't for this discussion, but one of the things that I worked really hard to accept is that there is cooperation, but the idea that there is violence in our reality, there's killing, there's death, there's the, sp the shedding of fluids, there's a lot of yeah. things that I kind of had to get comfortable with as I was trying to develop an ethical framework, and then yeah. it got to 
maybe life more in balance without enclosure that restores food chains and that restores activity. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm thinking. That, that word violence is interesting. I think about this a lot, uh, you know, probably along the same lines that you do in terms of how did indigenous people interact with animals that they were eating, but not humiliating, not violating in a Absolutely. sense, you know? So the word violence, I think, presupposes um, uh, 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 sort of an offense against the other, Absolutely. whereas there can be killing that is merciful and respectful and uh, beautiful. I, w I would say so. I would definitely look at violence as more of a kind of one directional effect on something that's being victimized in some ways. And there's a lot of people that fight me on. There's a lot of books written about trying to sort of split hairs around this. Is idea. a cheetah bringing down a gazelle violence? Uh, I would say that no, it's, it's perfectly a part of that reality and both of those beings realities. But I think the the thing that i get at is it, it is painful to be uh, eviscerated and torn to shreds right well so you know the, the, there there's those, evidence that endorphins are released th th that in that help. situation uh, and I, I say this because you know and we'll get into this but i i lived in peru for a long time when i was researching plants for my dissertation did ayahuasca and i had a ceremony one night of being <laughs> Excuse me. In the position of essentially a cold-blooded, bloodthirsty killer, and I was literally running alongside this river and just ripping things to shred with my teeth. I was foaming at the mouth in the ceremony. And then all of a sudden, as soon as I got into that kind of perpetrator consciousness, it flipped on me, and I was laying there being ripped by something else. And I, the visceral pain was pretty intense, but there was a disassociation where I could feel it physically, but there was also a relief from kind of the nerve sensations. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, that idea and the separation and, and the perpetration of violence, but also our fear of even talking about it or talking about death, it is about death. And no one wants to be the person on the savanna being shredded by the cheetah right um so i think a lot of our systems while not always being some kind of negative dark capitalist kind of enterprise often are attempting to shield us and bracket death and separating life and death and separating us from the fact that the hamburger that you ate that required the killing and disassembly of that animal yeah. is that something that any person really wants to to think about when they're eating probably not um, well is that part of now does this get back to what makes us human like you're talking about the bracketing off of death i i think the essential sort of the first step is we're not animal therefore part of us is immune to death we have spirit that they don't have absolutely therefore you don't have to worry about it as much yeah that's a, that's a wonderful point and that's something that i'd have to think about for a second to really respond to um yeah i think what's being revealed just as we talk here is that every time we're thinking through something right we have this register that we're thinking through that's got serious problems yeah um i just think that you know life is built on that cycle of death and birth and there's an elegance to it and there's a beauty and for me a response to that is looking at the diversity of the world appreciating it appreciating how perfect everything is from macro scale to micro scale and into yeah. those nano scales it's and not to lapse into creationist thinking that's not what i'm saying here but there's a uh, the divine elegance almost to the way that life is lived and the acceptance and all the 
sort of passages that a person has to go through to find peace in, in life involve these recognitions of life and death and seasons yeah. and there's yeah. something about that and there's something about that that makes the act of dying even in a violent quote unquote violent nature I think acceptable it, it makes it an act of sacred surrender I think it, absolutely and, know, and, under and, the right conditions and I don't know I mean I haven't come across lots of evidence because when we talk about writing books and, and keeping documents outside of symbolic forms I mean who knows what our human ancestors faced when there were large-scale carnivore predators that could take us out what what did that look like what was the scale of our death at the face of sort of food chain pressures i don't know i haven't seen anything we know that it happened and we know that a lot of our tool making and things was to sort of stop that Um, but at the same time i don't know what that looks like but i think humans and it kind of drives me insane sometimes and that's partially why i left critical theory is i couldn't find an out to thinking about these things that led to any transformation outside of myself. Mm. Um, and the idea is that when the world is is human and the world that we live in is paved over and we've reduced ecosystem diversity and the animal calls are silenced, I think it becomes very hard to fi- figure out what that sort of primal ground of existence is that includes all beings. And I think... Um, having spent times in places like the Amazon while remote, I could still look up at the sky and see planes flying over. Right. Um, so I think there's something about already having such a description of existence that we kind of come into the world with and we have a certain language that we're steeped and programmed in that it makes it sometimes really hard to think through what does this look like on the other side. Um, and there's a guy at Rice right now as well named Tim Morton who's practicing something called object-oriented ontology. And he views sort of all these human maneuvers in philosophy to create exceptionalism as essentially an extension of what he calls agro-logistics. Right. And I would agree with that. Um, But really what he's talking about is this really beautiful way of sitting with other beings and observing them and not trying to foreclose their experience, just watching it and let it sort of Mm. trickle into your reality and see what type of kind of almost nonverbal communications occur and what kind of consciousness shifts occur. And he has, you know, Dark Ecology is one of his books, and he's written Mm. stuff like Ecology Without Nature. Um, He's actually gone from what I consider to be a pretty destructive path to a really beautiful way of thinking philosophically about the world that we live in. But... You know, I'm not so certain that people are capable of it because it's that idea of the human is so programmed that when you go and talk about it, it becomes something that people can't imagine isn't true as it's been told. I wonder to what extent the idea of human is embedded within or, or intertwined with the idea of progress. Because that, that's my bugaboo these days. This, you know, I'm writing, trying to... Uh, question this notion of progress and uh, and the the psychological resistance to it is astounding. And just this morning, I was reading a, an article by Andrew Sullivan. Uh, I don't know if you know him. Uh, w- wonderful guy, super smart dude. And it's he's he, it's sort of a, a bit of a response to Steven Pinker's latest book, Enlightenment Now, which is the celebration of progress and history. You know, the Enlightenment and all this. And so he's critical. Sullivan is critical of of Pinker and shows that he's a one-dimensional and he's ignoring all this stuff. But he keeps using phrases like, you know, um, clearly the the you know evidence for the human progress is indisputable. It's irrefutable that that life is so much better now than it's ever been before for human beings. 
It's not irrefutable. It's not unarguable. It's when you keep using these sorts of words that are designed to shut down conversation. I think what you're doing is you're exposing some weird emotional foreclosure on thinking. Which disturbs me for a guy like that. I mean, I expect it from Steven Pinker because he's, you know, making a certain argument. But even when you're critical of that argument, you still feel it's almost like saying, look, we all know communism is evil. But, you know, Karl Marx had a point when he said this. You know, it's like, why do we need to genuflect to fucking progress all the time when millions of people are killing themselves either through addictions or bad diets or fucking pistol to the head uh, or useless wars and we're destroying the planet and you know we're miserable and unhappy and living alone I mean I could go on and on and I'm not saying my points are irrefutable I'm saying there's a fucking conversation to be had here I absolutely agree 100% with you and I think there's some middle ground between the progress apologists or proponents and those of us that think that technology could be possible if it was constructed in different ways i find that laughable that idea that progress is is inevitable that it's our sort of destiny as human beings and that there's evidence that there's no other way i find it laughable in the sense if it was what we were supposed to do our very existence wouldn't be wiped out by progress itself right well and the existence of everybody else too and all the cases of first contact between so-called civilized people and so-called non-civilized people, there are thousands of documented cases of civilized people running off to live with the Indians, and not a single fucking case of the opposite. Opposite, yeah. Yeah, and I think if you look at... I think when people talk about progress in those terms, and even the ones that try to be more nuanced about it, the calculus that they're using is still an economic calculus. If you abstract... Mm. what progress is creating into numbers and symbols, you could convince yourself that it's a good thing. Yeah. So my undergrad degree, crazily, is in finance. I studied all of this stuff. This was at Dartmouth? No, at Cal State North. Oh, oh okay. My undergrad in Los Angeles. And so finance, then critical theory. And then comparative lit and architecture. And, <laughs> and now you work in medicine, yes. which we're going to get yeah. to at some yeah. point. Um, but bi- I, biohacking. But yeah. Yeah. But I find I find those those arguments really problematic, and I find them to be yet another example of human ideas and the incomprehensibleness of us just being. Yeah. And why do indigenous cultures and the the cultures of the East? Why is a big part of their culture mindfulness? Because they realize that without mindfulness, you lapse into things like having to be constantly busy, in progress, moving towards something, making like. There's a lot of people that try to take progress and use it as an example of human creativity. Hmm. And I find that also problematic. Um, And the idea that industrial civilization has borne better qualities of lives, less disease. Well, we're living longer, but we're keeping really sick people alive. Yeah, and and, and we're not actually living much longer. No, we're not. And and our our good years are coming. That's it. You look at active years. Much earlier than I think our ancestors were. And I think if you look at the happiest places on earth that have the highest levels of human uh i guess fulfillment 
they are places with very modest incomes. Yeah. They are places and, that have And very little... Um, uh, GDP. Well, very little, small GDP, but also I was going to say uh, uh, disparity between the wealthy and the... Absolutely. The, you know, that's the key. If they're close together, it doesn't really matter how high or low they are on the scale. It's how close they are together. Absolutely. An example of what you were saying in terms of economics, which just fucking kills me every time I see it... Uh, one of the the statistics that's always thrown around is that there are far fewer people living in extreme poverty now than 50 years ago. Now, I was talking to my wife about that. She's from Mozambique, right? She grew up in Mozambique. And she pointed out, she's like, well, of course, 50 years ago, most of the people in Mozambique weren't part of the money economy. They had chickens and gardens and they, you know, would shoot some animals occasionally. They were living outside of the money economy. So when you say, well, there are millions of people who were living on $0 a day then and now they live on $4 a day, you're saying they've moved to the city because we've decimated the fucking countryside and they're working in some shitty-ass factory or sweeping floors in a hotel for $4 a day, living in favelas in poverty... And we're calling that improvement. Absolutely. And I think that's just another example of you take someone who didn't have a calculable economic value to an to a economy and a global economy. As soon as you add something that was once at zero or uncounted to some value to it, it becomes valuable. Right. But in context, as you say, it's a total fantasy. It's a farce. We've shown that not only do these people have very short-lived material existences and very poor ones, the fact that we live on a planet where a third of the humans have no good water and no right. access to water right. is an indictment on all of this. Because if it was truly that good, and if that divide didn't matter, that wouldn't be a problem. So right. there's that. But it's also, when I look at it, having spent time in South America and having friends that have been in other places in the world where it's not just poverty, it's desperation. It's, right. it's really impossible living. The amount of people there who had rich cultures, rich botanical knowledge, uh, things that are, I think, really important to recapture and, and integrate back into the world, those people lose all that also in that transaction and exchange back into modern society. And as yeah, you say, But there's no number associated with no that, number. so and it's I, not part of the calculus. And statistics, and I think any of us that have been anywhere and any person that's thinking, when you see statistics and then you walk into any real place having... You live in Los Angeles. I lived there for a long time. I went to high school in South Central. You get into the real world of an economic sector, and I grew up in extreme poverty myself, and the realities of statistics start to fall away, and you, you do start to wonder how much of these statistics are capturing anything that's actually real. You know Mark Twain's line? Absolutely. <laughs> They're lies, damn lies, and statistics. Exactly. Yeah. And and having done statistical analysis and the amount of abstraction that it takes to even run a statistical analysis is astounding. Yeah. Um, and, and I think on the other side of it, it's have we actually asked these people to give us their experience? And this is yeah. something in, in post-colonial studies, the idea of the subaltern. When does the subaltern have a chance to speak about this newfound material existence that's so good for it? Right. right. Um, it's the idea of being told that you're being protected while you're being shot by a police officer on camera. Right. Right. It's 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 the, the uh, to borrow Audrey Lord's thing. You can't dismantle that master's house with the master's tools. And I right. find that really interesting that we have we hear these statistics in the developer in the the developed kind of first world, and we're like, well things are getting better some people have that idea for those folks over there do we have any interest to get their opinion and this gets back to the idea of the animals and the other things like 
do we really have speaking of a recent trump decision to um to import elephant tusks by what right does the united states have the the agency to be the one to make these decisions yeah um, and those are the kind of questions that bother me because until there's more people at the table and until we have a better understanding and also you know the sad thing is that if the third world also starts to consume like we are you know there's heavily high problematics with that even though you couldn't fault anybody for wanting to consume like we've had the opportunity to do so i think that we're kind of really in the corner in so many ways and for me that's it's mindfulness trying to restore some of these these connections to the world and and have conversations in ways that are outside of institutional control that maybe leads to it, but I'm, I'm not really sure how to Fucking get out of Fucking podcasting, this, this, this man. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the only hope. It's, it's the only hope. <laughs> so, uh, uh, man, you're you're really interesting. I, I'm enjoying this. I, I, the only downside is I feel like we could pick one topic and talk for five hours about that one little thing. So forgive me for like pushing forward Absolutely. a little bit. We could always do another one at some point. I'd be happy. To, I'd love so. to. Yeah, we'd come to Topanga. Absolutely. Yeah, stay stay at Nomi's place. She's got a sweet guest house. Let me tell you, I've I've sp- I stayed there a lot. Um, uh, what was I going to say? I, I just wanted to move move on a little bit. How so? You abandoned. Your your PhD, you just oh you said that you lost your chair a couple times and it just turned into a bureaucratic nightmare, and and so what then you mentioned South America how did you move from this sort of philosophical inquiry into this more experiential travel related stuff? So kind of the PhD studies crumbled on a lot of fronts. So there was the politics of the department that made it impossible to do the work. This is at UCLA? U- USC. USC. Yeah. And I was doing most of my work in landscape architecture. And the people that took over my department felt that it was better that comp lit remain around strict national categories of literature, which no other comp lit department really in the U.S. outside of Harvard does it that way. It's very interdisciplinary. You can kind of do anything you want hmm. in comp lit. Um, so I had that. I had traveled to Peru before I quit. And then when I was in Peru, the part of my story is I got exposed to mold. So I also nearly died. Mold. Mold. In and, Peru? In Peru. And then I had some viral stuff going on that had been with me since I was a kid and all that kind of coalesced. So I went and came back to Los Angeles, left my grad school partly on my own volition and choice and partly because I couldn't even get out of bed. So I was, I was bedridden for about two years and then sick overall for five. And uh, that's what kind of propelled me into medicine. But as far as the mindfulness experiential stuff, I, I have some pretty high levels of Cherokee ancestry in my family tree on my father's side my grandmother grew up on the reservation in oklahoma and because my father wasn't in my life i didn't know those folks but i started mm. meditating when i was 15 or 16 like a lot of folks i found krishnamurti and read his stuff but i started meditating and i've always been a deeply spiritual guy and so i always was looking for that praxis i never felt that great doing just theoretical work it almost felt like a uh, frustrated intellect all the time because it could never manifest in anything materially. Right. So that's why I kind of moved into architecture because I was doing design work and rethinking Los Angeles as a forested canopy and rede- redesigning buildings and things like that. But there was this deep kind of call, and I had also been admitted to medical school twice uh, to Bastier, and I got into some regular MD programs after my undergrad, and I had resisted doing healing work because I grew up in a family where it was sort of by necessity that I was having to do those things. 
so eventually my own health and kind of wounded healer journey occurred right and rather than resist it anymore i just kind of let it go and i moved into this to this mode of one just trying to figure out what was wrong with myself and having done medical research and other types of research all along and i studied permaculture and i i'm a big plant geek so i i've been i've been growing rare subtropicals and really just thinking through a lot of that and really trying to find a life that was more rooted in something that i could hang my hat on because i didn't have uh, the level of personal fulfillment connection peace that i had been seeking and you know that's kind of at the root of what we're like why are we progressing why are we doing these things because the amount of peace that people hold inside themselves is it's there's zero and many folks and and not that that mindfulness guarantees it but at least you get to see that there's something so beyond and then there's something so beyond in the immediate experiential reality that that it kind of shuts off your desire to consume but i was going through these complex machinations and i was also there was one point when i was in the lit program that i remember sitting in a seminar it was post atomic bomb literature from japan and we were reading also like ralph ellison and books like that and really looking at the effects of a culture with these nuclear kind of weapons and you could literally divide the table the lacanian scholars the marxists the post-colonialists like and everybody's responses were so rote and automated that i felt like you know i was wasting my time and i got tired of hearing the actual creators of these works are just shredded by theorists and because i was also a writer and creative person myself so i just really run a course and i literally was faking migraine headaches to get out of this seminar at the end and i knew time was up i couldn't write anymore either and so the cover story is yes i lost my chair but the reality of me writing that dissertation that was accepted was probably slim because my whole being had rebelled against it so why did you apply to grad school or to uh, med school if you weren't you weren't convinced you wanted to be a doctor honestly i think it was just kind of a reminder to myself in the future to remember that um i grew up in a really poor family but there were civil rights activists and my grandmother was a surgical nurse here in austin and i saw the the impact that medicine could have and i was interested in it i was i was really interested in like I made myself into a Division One basketball player, an All-American basketball player in high school because I studied plyometrics and all these things, and I saw that I could change my body. And, and I, you're what, 5'8"? Five, 5'11 five, when I stand up straight. Really? Yeah. Oh. But when I was an athlete, I had like a 40-inch vertical. and I went, No shit. I could really play basketball, and that was kind of my first love. But I saw that I could change my body, and then I, I was a horrible – I was a pretty sickly kid, and – I remember going and seeing an herbalist here in Austin and a homeopath, and all of a sudden I didn't have allergies anymore. So it always kind of stuck with me. But I've always kind of taken uh, an approach to medicine and ideas, very interdisciplinary. So medicine just has been one of my pillars. Mm. Medicine, health, healing. Yeah. Um, so it's always been a part of me. But when I went to the visits at the medical schools, it just, you know, for obvious reasons, it didn't appeal to me. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the naturopathic schools were better, but they were also very dogmatic and based on protocols, and they weren't that interesting either. So... I thought I was going to change the world teaching literature, you know, and and, <laughs> and I also was a writer. Me too, man. Writing more, and I thought that I could, you know, the fantasy that a lot of writers have, well, I just need to get a teaching gig and I can write. Well, that never happened. Yeah. Um, and I love literature. I love philosophy literature, and I'd rather study that than anything, but it just didn't work out. Yeah. Um, 
and I'm now searching for a place to finish the PhD, but I'm not certain where that's going to be. And I've looked at medical schools in the in the in, in Germany and India, and then I've been looking more at history of science. So my interest now is mostly in biopolitics and biohacking and. And we can get into that here in yeah, a minute, but yeah. I, I, I regret that I don't have those letters because it allows you a chance to debate at a higher level. And it, yeah, it, it does something. Yeah. You have your PhD, right? It does something once you have that and kind of giving you a platform on occasion, unless yeah. you're not from the right location. For you that ever PhD. heard of Jeff Leach microbiome? Yes. Okay. He, he, uh, I read about it. I read the thing he wrote a few years ago about uh, taking a Hadza uh, fecal material mm-hmm. and squirting it up his butts to see if yeah. he could colonize his colon. I met him by chance sitting at a fucking table in Terlingua, Texas, two weeks ago. Interesting. He just I mentioned the article and somebody's like, "Oh, he wrote that." I was like, "You, you, you're wow. the guy." And he's like, "Yeah." Anyway. He's been profiled in science. He's got articles in science, articles in nature. You know, he's fucking big time. I had him on the podcast, just released it two weeks ago. Brilliant dude. No PhD. Yeah. I, I think the reality is, is the PhD in, in most cases is becoming obsolete because, and, and this is not to make an argument for my own self, but when you look at the greatest scientists in, in Western history, why were they also artists? Why were they potentially also musicians? Why were they interested in multiple types of disciplinary things? I'm telling you, I think I think that training squeezes the creativity out of it. Absolutely. And it also, I mean, the Heisenberg effect. I mean, if you look at how you conduct science, I have several friends who are PhDs in biomedical engineering, and they'll talk about uh, diagnosis that they're making of maybe a family member with something and they're so far from reality and understanding how the body works that it's scary right but they'll tell me that i don't know what i'm talking about clinically i get results right but i when naomi came to the talk i gave it was on medical hermeneutics and it was on the style of of philosophical kind of reading that i do to understand what's wrong with a person Mm. and what i said is that the physicians of the future won't come from medical schools they'll be the guy in literature or music or finance that's taken an interest in the body Mm. and applies a different framework so one of the greatest people in paleo sort of world view is is art devaney He's a, an economist at UCLA. He wrote this amazing book, Viewing the Body as a Decentralized Economy. Hmm. That metaphor works in a lot right. of ways and how right. the body utilizes external actors. And so I think that, that, that medicine and, and we're kind of riding this wave where credentials don't matter as much. But kind of the other side of that is that there's a lot of folks in the biohacking world and a lot of folks doing this research that have used that and branded themselves away from doing legitimate research. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which now the lack of credential has turned the c- competition for <clears throat> clients and money into a cult of personality. Right. Um, yeah. So I try to be rigorous. I also try to know what my limits are. I also would not conduct PhD research in the sciences in America because I don't want to do re- animal research. I will, I'm not going to put animals under my scalpel to, to try to extract some kind of resource from them. Yeah. So that's kind of the other thing is that I think science in the United States weeds out a lot of comprehensive interdisciplinary thinkers and women, especially because it's built on animal studies right. and animal experiments. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that don't want to do that. Yeah. So, you know, it's a long winded way of saying things, but I kind of am settled here. And, and I think of you probably familiar with the Toltec Indians, but they have this, 
this great line, uh, the right story, stalk the right people to tell them. Uh-huh. And I've kind of viewed myself in that way and tried to be more in that submitting role where right. I wanted to be a lot of things. But the reality is, is that there are certain things that are calling for my attention. Sounds really woo out there with people that meditate. I'm trying to be guided by that. And I'm almost right now, I'm kind of getting out of genetics a little bit and out of functional medicine, moving more towards biopolitics and philosophy again. I'm kind of circling back in plants, but, you know, I don't really know. I just know that licensure-wise and to have legal right to practice certain things, credentials matter, unfortunately, yeah. in some ways. But you can hide out behind other things. Right. Um, well, and you can offer advice with disclaimers. Absolutely. Another – I don't think that sounds woo at all, by the way. Yeah. The, the some old, people find it woo, but I well, don't Well, fuck them. They don't yeah, listen exactly. to this podcast. The, the thing that – I mean, the older I get, the more wisdom I see in learning to just shut the fuck up and listen to what you're being told by the Absolutely. world and by your life and your your curiosity and your interest. Uh, you, you know, if we're going to play um, indigenous people quote tennis, uh, I think I think this one's Navajo. It's easier to ride a horse in the direction it's going. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so many people are like, no, go the other way. Like, fuck well, it, I was one of those people, too. And I mean, yeah. I viewed getting sick and having my life fall apart around 29 as an example of swimming upstream. Sure. And the suffering was tremendous. Uh, the other thing I think about in terms of like research and, and disciplines in the United States, Ph.D. programs, the first two to three years, as you know, are spent doing a lot of coursework and that's not bad i mean you should have some breadth of your discipline and understand it but in europe the research most phds are research only you come in you're expected to be competent you drive your own ship and that's the other thing that kind of gets at me and i think of italo calvino as one of my favorite writers he's got this uh, article on like the library that you have at home and he says 70 percent of it should be unread and it should be a living thing mm. and i think about so many times books that i picked up on my journeys and i'm in a research project riding the horse in the direction it wants to go and that book comes off the shelf and i pick yeah. it up yeah you can't do that in institutional settings research wise right. you can't really be guided by inspiration right and i found that that guidance has allowed me to discover principles or put things together that have helped humans heal right um and that's the other reason why you know i'm i'm, I'm sort of back and forth with finishing but i do think there's some utility but i think it's really only in the u.s i think the rest of the world is much further ahead of us in allowing experts to be experts based on their merit mm. and what they have to say and their contributions is, is opposed to the politics based. of credentials yeah absolutely um let, let's talk about the this transition a little more that you mentioned that you had a, an issue with molds and you were bedridden for a couple of years you yeah said? was that due to the mold yeah so i had viral stuff epstein-barr is a very well-known viral infection and I'd probably had that since I was a toddler and just a nervous system that was thrashed by poverty and trauma growing up. And so I was sort of setting the stage for this viral thing to flare up and mold really more than anything flatlines your immune system and destroys your immunity and your mitochondrial function and your enzyme function. And so once that happened, it allowed these things that I had been kind of harboring to come to life. And now, is this mold to which all of us are exposed? This is the, just- the dangerous. This would be stachybotrys. So this is the dangerous black mold. And I was living in the jungle, and I slept in this little tambo, this hut. And there was this screen next to my bed. And, and you know, I grew up in Austin, the mold capital of the United States, airborne mold. But I didn't know what this stuff was. And I remember people would kind of joke, like, 
they were having respiratory things and I was like, Oh, it's the mold, but I didn't pay much attention to it. And I didn't really have any symptoms for until a year, almost to the date of coming back. Uh, but that had kind of been working on me other than real exhaustion, tiredness. And then I remember there was kind of an emotional thing that flared up and then that flatlined me. And it was a horrendous, I mean, horrific thing, like, uh, going through what I went through in the beginning, the symptoms were impossible. Um, and then trying to get a handle on what was going on was, was impossible as well. What were the symptoms? Uh, in the beginning I had severe pressure in both ears for about three weeks. Then I had severe tinnitus ear ringing and then I didn't sleep for nine days straight. And then I had severe pain all over my body that lasted about a year. I still have white noise in my ears from this. Um, but it just shut me all down. And then I started just having physical injuries. Like I just fell apart. Um, and it was just sequential. It kind of nailed the, the foundations of the body and then everything went south. And I was searching and I didn't have a, you know, anybody in my family to help me to get really any supplements or anything. And so I went to doctors and they wanted to spinal tap and do all different. They told me that I was using my ears to have a nervous breakdown. Um, you know, I got all the kind of Western, we don't know what's wrong with you. You're crazy. Go away. And then I worked with the natural doctors and they, they had their tools and they were not working. So I finally, after about two and a half years, started reading about genetics and I trained myself in, in clinical genomics. And I found out that while genetics aren't always the problem, if they're, presenting in such a way and their underlying things your ability to heal is very poor and so i had really poor genetics around detoxification and glutathione manufacturing and all these things and then i took that genetic knowledge and then i picked up something in germany and india called bioregulatory medicine and i was able to find how deep this pathology had made its way into my body and it was into the cells and into the coenzymes so i had no foundations for healing and so I used homeopathy and dietary changes. And if there was people that took pity on me to give me this structured water, I would drink that. I did saunas. I did a lot of earth, like uh, nature cure work, sunlight and grounding. And finally was able to kind of get out of the weeds. But I was down from about the age of 30 to 35 and a half. I'm 37 now. Um, but I became an expert in genetics and also the effects of trauma on the biochemistry of the body. And putting together kind of a sequence for working with people that really removes the disturbances in the system and allows those cells to function again. Um, so how do you, how did you determine that, that this, this trauma was happening at a cellular level? Were you sending tissue off for biopsy or? Well, it's really hard through kind of biomarker analysis to, to gauge the effects of trauma. Like there are, probably a handful of biomarkers that you could look at like homocysteine that's elevated in spite of supplementation and, and ma dietary management as an example for instance that this methylation cycle in the body isn't active um, but it's really just knowing that i was in a fight or flight state from the age of about two days old so it's a chronic stress chronic situation chronic stress and what happens biochemically is that let's say you have chronic emotional stress or you have a couple of large capital T traumas. And I was hit by a drunk driver with my mom when I was four. Um, and my mom had a severe head injury and I had no dad. So it really altered my childhood. I kind of had to become an adult at five basically. Right. Um, and I always had this drive, but I played basketball and I was this fast twitch kind of person. It wasn't until I stopped having those outlets 
that I started to realize, yeah, I'm living in constant fight or flight. And I'm not saying that everybody isn't because most people are, but I was, and I started to just see my health steadily declining, uh, emotional health, and then just poor recovery. And we're talking about a 20 year old guy who was an elite athlete um, and knew a lot about health, but it just wasn't sticking. So what occurs is when your body is under chronic nervous system tension, the biochemistry of the body spends all of its time making adrenaline, epinephrine, and histamines and deactivating those things. It takes a lot of resources to do that. When that occurs, you're not going to heal. And so like a lot of folks that I work with these days, they'll have seen 40 doctors before they see me. And primarily it's because the doctors never listen to their story and don't have any tools for that. You don't have time to listen to their story. So I force people, for instance, if you're going to work with me, you're going to do somatic trauma therapy. And there's a handful that I found that work. But what happens is you start to do that. There's more emotional freedom and there's less tr constant triggering in the environment. But the body, the CNS, gets back into a switchable state. There's relaxation. Then you can get into the higher orders of DNA, RNA creation, protein synthesis, creatine manufacture. You can actually get into more of a healing state. But also, as you can guess behind all of this, is that part of healing from chronic illness is learning to regain authorial control over your life story. Mm. And I realized that, yeah, my genes were bad. I got exposed to mold. I grew up really poor. Um, you know, I had a disproportionate amount of things that were pressures on my genome. But at the end of the day, I was living how I knew how to live, and it was breaking me down every step of the way. Can you say that again? A, a, a critical component of healing is regaining the authorial ownership of your text, of your life, of, of your, your body. Your, the story you're writing, mm -hmm. that you need to be the author of it. You're not a victim. You're not... And uh, you're not a character in someone else's story. Absolutely. You're writing this fucking thing. And it's yeah. not to, to victim blame as well, because one of the things I see with a lot of the folks that I work with is they're told that it's all in their head or they're creating their illness. I don't right. take that at all. No. People do the best that they can, but what happens is I, I don't know, and, and I'm glimpsing this through my worldview and the communities I've come through, but you know, are people living the life that they want to live, generally speaking? I would say probably not. Um, and if you've looked at, like, if anybody's ever seen that 25 Up documentary that oh, came out. It's fantastic. Can, yeah. Think of those kids. All those kids were beautiful, radiant, Seven happy. Up. It started with it seven, seven, yeah. Maybe only one of them, when they checked in in the last segment, was healthy. They were all beaten to, to shit by life, right? And that's not because life be, – it does beat us to shit, but we don't have a lot of tools in place, for instance, to get over your wife leaving you or that car accident you had or the death of your mom, whereas the body does have a tremor mechanism to release trauma out of the nervous system. And most of the time, because we're a cognitively kind of neck-up society that lives very intellectualized kind of lives – that trauma, while you can be in the present, and even plant medicine work often just moves you into the present cognitively, what ends up happening is your body's still driving everything. And there's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score that looks at the long-term transformation of the brain and the body. And I've seen this where, let's say you're in an unhappy marriage, but you had an attachment wound with your mom and you're thinking about making that decision to break free and find that partner you want or maybe you want to explore poly things or whatever your orientation is you go to do that and the somatics of you just grab you back and yank you back into that that sort of impoverished state and that's kind of when i think about the lack of being able to tell your story your body is so afraid of living mm. and that it's so afraid for your survival that it keeps you restrained and it does it because it cares about us yeah but the reality is that's not what's truly happening so a lot of what i've seen is getting people 
uh, out of the traumatic sort of weeds in ways that are not talk therapies. I like EMDR and trauma release exercises. And then there are some other things that are, that are somatically capable. I'll use homeopathic remedies occasionally, constitutional remedies to help move people through their trauma. But mostly what I see is that when that starts to clear, then all of a sudden they have the desire to eat better. The nutrition that they're taking in to rebuild their nervous system and brain and tissues is better assimilated the body there's just more joy there's more dynamism returned into it and then the effects of sunlight and electromagnetic effects and all that start to really help to reboot things but that's kind of it was a several year period of bringing research that i had done as a 16 and 17 year old back into the present and trying to figure out well what's the mix but a lot of it came down to when somebody sits down talking to him for three hours asking them about their birth birth trauma in my opinion is the number one thing to ask anyone did you have a traumatic birth were you breastfed did you have attachment was your mom capable of generating the right compass to your nervous system if not we need to start there and not forget about your how, how do you go back in time and and write you know write the ship when it starts off in balance like that way Part of it is realizing that the body is very interested in bioregulation. So while you may have been stuck or out of regulation, out of balance, so to speak, for four or five decades, it still desires to go back there, and it can very quickly. Um, some of these somatic therapies, and I'm saying this, I've done them myself, work, have resolved things in three to six weeks that I've spent 20 years and other methods taking care of. So can you describe an example of a somatic th therapy? Yeah. I mean, it's body oriented, obviously, but so EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization and repatterning. And, uh, there are some folks that practice it in the way that Francine Shapiro designed it. All they do is they put their finger kind of almost like in a hypnotic motion, left, right in front of your eyes. Um, and it's they call it bilateral stimulation and you come in there let's say most of us know like that bad breakup we had or one of those car accidents you start there because oftentimes for instance if you read stan groff and the idea of the coex systems mm -hmm. if you know at least a surface trauma it oftentimes gives you access to that infantile experience even though it was pre-verbal mm -hmm. so that's kind of what i've seen is that emdr dr through this bilateral stimulation allows you to dive into those states and you start to gain access but it's not about seeing it it's just about realizing we're present that's over you're taken into the room essentially with the trauma and you have someone there that's distracting your nervous system's attempt to grab hold of it and it tends to release it the form of emdr that i went through was done with a lady here in austin who's one of the most amazing people i've met named leslie larson she does something called natural processing which is a version of emdr all she does is sit across from you like we are now and she taps your knees left right we talk about something we want to go into and i kind of sit there and, and you kind of get as close as you can you might notice you get sleepier you try to disassociate or you might notice hey i'm able to look at this um so i saw my premature birth my i, I nearly died at two days old because they didn't clean my lungs out in the hospital and my grandmother happened to be a nurse and was able to save me but i was like a blueberry in color and it caused a lot of friction in my life uh, especially with my mom from that attachment wound mm. so i was i've seen those things and in plant medicine work, I could kind of get in more into a metaphorical space around them, but my body didn't let it go. 
So that's an example. Trauma release exercise is another really great tool. It was created by David Roselli. Um, He was a psychologist, and he was working in Africa and a lot of these regions where there's civil war. He'd be in these schools, and the entire school had PTSD. These kids, they couldn't think, they couldn't sleep, they couldn't learn. And so he knew that he didn't have resources for one-on-one. There was no money, so he created this simple therapy that's just a series of low-body exercises. And when you're finished, you lay on the ground, and your legs shake, and you tremor, and it just unwinds the nervous system. And people that commit to doing that two times a week for three months see unbelievable change. Hmm. A lot of what I do with people, if the finances are there, is I get them some somatic therapy, and then I ask that they find a meditation practice that they can do. I practice transcendental meditation, but something that they can do because you're unwinding the trauma and it leaves a void, especially around dysfunctional types of responses to relationships. And so I like people to kind of have a mindfulness practice so they see the bigger transcendent kind of ocean of the self and then they can fill that void that way instead of from that childlike person who's survival threat and then they'll do anything to to protect it so a lot of what i do is going back and looking at that and trying to educate people on that is your probably fundamental issue here's the genetic things that were triggered by a lot of that long-term uh, trauma and then here's the viral infections that proliferate and changing hormonal states with the abundance of stress chemicals in the body and we look for those and then we we work on removing those and it takes six to nine months for most people uh, to really start to turn around in a deep way but i've seen stage four cancer als i've seen a lot of those things resolve and to give you an example i had four clients in the last year with als every single one of them was in the towers that fell in 9 11. not a single one of those people had been encouraged to seek out trauma therapy um, and we know what so that th- must have been like. Do you think ALS is a response to trauma or is triggered by trauma? Or I th- So backing up, I don't want to make it seem like trauma is the cause. It's a factor. So I like to say all these things that are horrible, chronic diseases are multifactorial. Right. So I would say trauma. In the case of the ALS folks that were in 9-11, obviously they picked up an unbelievable toxic stew that made its way into the yeah. body. Yeah. They tended to have uh, a lot of these folks were type A, really overdriving personalities, certain types of nutrient depletions, and then just no sleep. And a lot of what I also see is a lot of mismatch between the peripheral and circadian clocks of the body, where the you know the exposure of light or eating at the wrong times, and that drives a lot of cancer and a lot of really destruction of myelin and nerves. I have a buddy who's a fireman, and we talk about that a lot. How it, how insane it is that. Those firemen are forced to be on this strange rotating schedule, and their sleep's constantly And disrupted. expected to be able to respond in this perfect yeah, way to right. an incredibly stressful event. Yeah. It's, and those guys are warriors. Uh, Plus the toxins. The toxins, absolutely. Yeah. And the, between what they're on, on their body physically and the retardants that they use. Yeah, the other thing I like to tell people, too, is like, look, we're not... I think when we talk about trauma, too, it's we need a new word. It's a little mm. bit like when we talked about violence earlier. Trauma, to me, is a misunderstanding that a person experiences that causes them to contract in a way that's destructive for that person. And every human being experiences trauma. And I brought up that documentary because 
I can imagine a scenario where those people would have had the opportunity to lay down and tremble a few times in those events that turned them into husks of themselves that they might not have had that ending. Um, so I like to say that, hey, it happens to all of it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Women, not to stereotype, but they tend to be very transparent about all the things that have happened. The men that I work with, you have to like almost kind of come around a back door and hypnotize them into even sharing mm. what's happening. But it's it's a part of all of us. And I think of that story. I don't, I'm don't. i sure you've read Stan Groff. And, I've met him, yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you know in the LSD psychotherapy book, have you read that particular book? A long time ago. There's that case study. There was a homosexual man who he had this uncanny ability to attract murderous boyfriends. Yeah. And seven of his boyfriends tried to murder him, and he was working with Groff, and he did. <laughs> I don't know if he attracted murderous boyfriends. Yeah. He drove him drove to murder. Him, drove, yeah. There was, but I'm just saying he had this unbelievable ability to find himself in this yeah. same scenario. Yeah. He did 50 sessions with Groff, LSD psychotherapy, and he finally got to this situation where they were in this field. His mom and dad had walked about 30 yards away. And a cow had come up to him and licked him in the face when he was in the stroller, and that's what freaked his ass out. When he saw that, his whole life changed, and he stopped doing all that crazy shit he was doing. Hmm. So that's an interesting example of, like, when you're a child, maybe I don't know how pre-verbal we truly are, hmm. um, but we remember those things, and a lot of what we suffer from is misunderstandings. But if you have a misunderstanding and a belief that's skewed – Look at what you can create for yourself. And so yeah. that's kind of why I like to go back into looking at that. And and I don't sugarcoat it that, that you're going to get better that way. There are people that can heal without doing trauma therapy, but I call them functionally sick. They're triaging constantly. they got all their nutrients in. Hmm. Like the Ray Kurzweil of the world who takes 500 pills and does infusions. Existence shouldn't need to be precipitated by that type of heavy-handedness, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's scary. I've never met him, and I honestly, I haven't read much of his stuff, but those life extension people seem so driven by fear to me absolutely i mean they just there's desperation in that you know um but before we go in before we go further i wanted to step back to something you were talking about you said you go back to birth and we're talking about dna and epigenetics and things that are triggered and or may lie dormant and so on do you go in when possible do you go into earlier generations because we know as far what two three generations back trauma can be expressed in in genes absolutely so Everybody that I work with has to read this book called It Didn't Start With You. Uh. And it's not because it's the best book in the world about epigenetic inheritance of trauma, but it's a book that actually talks about the mechanisms and has exercises in the back end to define it in language. Mm. What are the core traumatic patterns of the family? Right. And I'll tell you that a lot of times people are chronically sick from the epigenetics of the family, not from their present life. And this is what's a big factor in mystery illness. But genetically speaking, the grandfather and, and great-grandfather are on the epi side of the genome. And they essentially transfer the response that the genetic material of the body gives to the environment. So let's say all of us, if you were maybe a second, third generation American, your ancestors went through the depression and that wasn't pretty for most people. How would those folks have responded to stress and scarcity? Pretty poorly. You get into the modern times where you're in traffic, cell phones, lots of pressure, lots of circadian mismatches, and all of a sudden you're responding like your grandfather did in 1930 to the present day. And I think that trauma, it definitely epigenetically transfers. 
mom and dad transfer the genetic material fairly evenly. Our mothers control the mitochondrial DNA and they control the neurotransmitter uh, genetics. So a lot of the personality comes from mom, especially mm. the serotonin dopamine genes. I didn't know that. But the epigenome is absolutely ancestral. And that's another thing that I think is really a problem in the West is that we don't think that ancestry has impacts. We tend to cut that line off because we're here and we say, well, we were related to those people, but we don't want to talk about genetic relations. And it's obvious, why would the genome transfer trauma? Because it wants to clean itself up. You can epigenetically modify your genes, even though they're written by certain types of behaviors. So the genes want to want to heal. I truly believe that they have a survivalist thing but i think there's a reason why we inherit it but i think if people ignore their ancestral impacts they're not gonna respond very favorably until they have that material at least at hand and sometimes you don't have access and a lot of the secrets of the family are locked in those patterns right yeah um so yeah yeah trauma can be very secretive is there also you know you're asking why would the genes transmit that information epigenetically across generations and i should just say this has been demonstrated experimentally with rats absolutely you know starved and traumatized the you know three generations later they're much more likely to develop obesity or different stress related disorders um but uh Couldn't there also be um, an adaptive value to this? Because, you know, we call it trauma. You know, a flood is a trauma. But if the flood persists over 20 generations, suddenly we start developing flippers. And it's no longer a trauma. It's our environment, you know. Absolutely. That's a really important thing. So when we think about trauma and our ancestors and the environment they were in, the transformations were environmental responses to survive. So I'll give you an example of two genes. The MTHFR gene is something that is talked about all the time now. It's very overdetermined, but the history of it's interesting. And we believe that the MTHFR modifications occurred in Europe during the plagues. And the people that were able to generate massive fever survived. They were inflammatory machines. Well, you put that genome into the present day, it's a very bad thing because there's a lot more triggering that inflammatory response than was maybe you know three four hundred years ago Hmm. so that gene was believed to be a a compensatory response it allowed people to generate that fever survive that pathogen that wiped out and weeded out the genome but was that a stronger genome no it was a genome that was purposeful in that moment and that's where the darwinian stuff starts to fall apart a little bit because it isn't always the fittest that survive it's the ones that can adapt right and adaptation can also be weakness as you move forward so that's an example there's another gene that i i work with a lot that a lot of the folks in the nutrigenomic clinical genomics world think doesn't have an impact and it's this what's called a cbs mutation it's a gene that's in the pathway to make glutathione via sulfur groups and things like that we believe that that gene and it's an upregulation was a response to environmental conditions where we needed a lot more antioxidant protection so it's upregulating antioxidant manufacture but it's depleting some of the other outcomes what would those conditions have been um Potentially where you're eating new types of dietary uh, uh. things where you're generating a lot of ROS through dietary impacts. I think that they're probably responses to kind of ice age conditions of those early ancestors removing 
to coastal environments and you're taking in things that are higher in fat, mm. early high fat intakes, while really good for the brain development, are also going to generate a fair amount of reactive oxygen damage uh, okay. as you learn to cellularly break down those. those so those do we find that, that gene expressed more frequently in, in the Inuit, for example? I, I, because I haven't had a chance to work with many folks there, I would imagine you would see that. All I right. see it a lot in people who come from Ireland, Wales. Um, I, w- I say that I, s- I would see that more in Caucasian populations than I do, for instance, in Hispanic or African-American. Mm. Uh, oftentimes, I see both the CBS and MTHFRs, and there's a bunch of other things. And when we talk a little more about genetics, I'll also talk about that's kind of a theory but genes also i view them as these great symphonies of action and so when we look at single genes we kind of lose the forest for the trees Mm. and i'll see a lot of times where that explanation seems plausible and then you think about the compensatory reactions and other enzymes to that mutation and you say well i don't know if that's entirely what's happening but some of that does make sense to me Mm. um, from what i see and then also seeing folks that have that ancestry and seeing how they behave in the face for instance of of different viral infections bacterial infections can they generate those fevers oftentimes they can but they suppress them with antibiotics or other antivirals and so it drives the pathogen deeper makes it harder to clear and then you see more tissue damage so there's a lot of interesting things that come out of this but i think the epigenome and ancestral impacts and transferences really need to be thought through a lot more deeply and then we talk about the microbiome right there's generations of those species as well um and there's a lot of interesting epi patterning that can change your genes to turn you into something that you're totally not actually a blueprint for yeah so, yeah which most of us are at this point absolutely. um uh what was i going to say oh you, what's your take on uh, vitamin d depletion do you think we're most people are chronically undernourished absolutely so vitamin d is something i'm really interested in um supplementally i tend to give large doses of small nutrients or sorry sorry a large number of nutrients at small doses micronutrient doses vitamin d is one of those sort of epigenetic macro modifiers and i would say that most people are chronically deficient in vitamin d for many reasons they either aren't in sunlight enough they're exposed to blue light they might have vdr receptor mutations that make their cells less efficient at synthesizing it and what occurs in the body is the body is essentially in a nuclear winter sort of mode and you have insulin dysregulation and a lot of sort of secondary effects from that but i would say that every single person i work with unless they've seen other functional doctors and have been consciously supplementing high doses are super deficient in vitamin D. The functional people think that you just need to get over 50 to, to on your blood lab test for that to be healthy. I would say you need to be closer to 90 to 100 if you have all these viral and other impacts going on. Most folks that I see are under 30. Under 30 and under 20, guaranteed autoimmunity. Um, vitamin D is, is such a signaling molecule, and I look at it as the pair to melatonin. And to me, the clock genes in the body are light-triggered genes. Vitamin D, to me, is really just a signal that there's light out. There's a signal to create insulin sensitivity and lots of other cellular mechanisms and the manufacture of chemicals in response to that. And when it's not in the right levels and when there's a low mismatch to it, you tend, you have this catastrophic sort of transformation of cell activity. So I've played around recently with 100,000 
IU daily doses for up to three months. So, you, so a supplement is effective. You, it, it doesn't need to come from sunlight. It can be. It has to have K2, in my opinion. Otherwise, you start leaching calcium and other things out of the body. But the supplements can be affected. Ideally, you would be out in the sunlight, feet on the ground, grounding while you're in the sun. And we know now that the electromagnetic fields that come from the magnetic core of the earth structure the coherent domains of the water in our body. So, okay, let's the grounding. You mentioned that because some of the things you get into, I know people are going to listen to this and be like, well, that guy sounds really smart. But then he said that shit about homeopathy and yeah. like, oh, it's bullshit or grounding. I mean, I see these, you know, people selling shoes for 50 bucks that have, you know, metal mesh in the uh-huh. sole or something that'll keep you connected to the earth. And I just hear, you know, namaste bullshit right there. Yeah. I mean, when I say grounding, I just mean take your shoes off and walk on the surface of the earth in right. an area that's preferably has no concrete or no interference. Or snakes. Um, but it, the reactions in the cells in this. So I studied a lot of the work of this woman, May Wan Ho, who is now dead, um, very big critic of EMFs. She was a water researcher and a physicist, and she wrote a book called The Rainbow and the Worm on the physics of organisms. Did she die mysteriously? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You, you chuckled there. I wondered yeah. why. Yeah. Recently, um, I did, you know, it was considered to be a sort of sudden death, but there's some suspicion around certain things. The industrial involvement? I don't know, really, because she was... She was very well respected in the scientific community, and on the other hand, not so much. And there's nothing in her books other than her basically saying that EMF uh, deniers on the effects of sort of uh, certain types of organisms um, should be tried, basically. She thought that they were uh, very culpable in a lot of human health problems because they were allowing these things to be ubiquitous in the environment. Is, is she talking about cell phones in our pockets or high power lines? Or? Everything, in the, basically anything in a home, anything right. that's going to generate a, a weak electromagnetic field. Huh. Um, How old was she? Early 50s. Young, yeah. very young. So, so she yeah. wrote a book. So when people respond, there's a lot of people that say homeopathy is bullshit. Um, homeopathy has a lot of bullshit practitioners there's ways in which it has to be used but i'll tell you part of the issue for instance with homeopathy, and i'll get back to the grounding idea is that that medicine was a quantum medicine and it's operates on quantum principles and unfortunately came online several hundred years ago um, if you look at some of the effects of like there's a remedy called carcinosum that's a constitutional remedy given for people kind of like myself who had a lot of trauma, don't trust the world, kind of warrior, competitive, um, but it's homeopathic cancer. And we know, for instance, that it activates P54 enzymes pretty abundantly. In my opinion, it operates like the modified CRISPR. The substance activates yes. them. Yeah, now, in and, dilution. And in dilution to levels at which there's it's no unlikely there's a molecule in yeah. there yes. of the original Absolutely. thing. So, you, so just so people understand how these remedies are made, there's a little bit of a certain essence or substance extract from something, generally something that provokes the symptoms that like you're... Like like, absolutely. Right, exactly. And then it's diluted and diluted and diluted and diluted to the point where mathematically it's unlikely that a single molecule from the original substance is in the the quantity that you're taking and yet somehow something is transferred into that there's a resonance of the substance in the water right and water because it has what they call quantum coherence and this is what's in maywan ho's book rainbow h2o is looking at that and the guy that discovered the hiv virus has come out in support of homeopathy because he's shown that 
let's say you take a bacterial pathogen and you dilute it as you would a homeopathic substance if you leave the signature of that pathogen on that water and transfer it to pure water it reconstitutes itself from the dna level back into the infection of the terrain so okay let's let's get into that yeah. you 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 introduce a pathogen to water so what's an example of the pathogen uh, they were looking at a bacterial pathogen a little bit like strep okay uh, and, they, so, and they kept sifting it and sifting it and removing kind of the materiality of the substance right to where if you looked at it in a dish there there was no longer any of it remaining right then they would take some of that what remains put it in pure water and they found that it reconstituted itself back into material form strep yeah back this particular i don't remember it was strep the, but the it bacteria, bacteria itself yeah. a living thing re-emerged yeah, because there was the genetic epigenetic signature energetically still in the water which is you know which is what homeopathy is based on yeah and we're looking at this from a materialistic scientific perspective Absolutely. and saying well that doesn't make any sense and yet what were we talking about earlier we're talking about how trauma 50 years ago or in your grandfather's life manifests in your life something happened that isn't happening now and yet it's present. Mm -hmm. It's not materially present. You may not even know what the fuck happened mm -hmm. when you were two days old or Absolutely. in your grandfather's life. And yet, you know, in terms of, of psychology, we're willing to entertain the notion or, or not just entertain it. We accept it as a given that that those effects persist over time, even when we don't know what caused the initial uh, you know, the initial event. And so in material, you're basically saying the same thing in material terms, but because of our way of thinking, it seems so unlikely. And I would say that even in genetic science, we accept epigenetic modifications coming from light and environmental things, what the Chinese would call the five elements. Mm. Um, there's a reason why the there would be an epi pattern and a material pattern on the water right because we know about quantum physics the particle and the wave exist simultaneously everything's in multiple state forms right so there's a lot of I, i've had clients who oh i don't believe in it and well i dig into it and then they say well i'm a person of science and i dig into that and they can't even explain to me what that means yeah and and then i say well if you read in indian research and in germany and all these places are athletes like kobe bryant fly to germany to get homeopathics injected into their knees miraculously heals all they're getting is an arnica injection what's through what's called biopuncture all homeopathy is is a signaling molecule and that's what i found if i didn't have it in my practice i couldn't help people i'll just sort of say that um i've studied the science of it there's a place called the homeopathic research institute in the uk that rebuts all this stuff um, but it has quantum effects and there's different potencies and there are different schools of homeopathy. There's single remedies, multiple remedies in one. There's homochords where you have all the potencies in one and the body selects the potencies it needs. There's, so it's a very complicated and heavily scientific field, but as you're alluding to our materialist science, um, doesn't really make room for the phenomenon that it generates. And so therefore it's non-existent in their terms. It's quackery. So is, but, but it, theoretically it can be measured right is is there research showing that homeopathic remedies are more effective than placebo yes there is there's absolutely peer-reviewed and what yep. although it's resistant yeah, yeah. Well, to getting it published pure, of course yeah and i mean peer review is all another topic yeah right? yeah yeah there are and they're 
there's also a lot of effects for instance like that we are doing medically that we have no real substantive proof for right sure but aspirin it, the reason why homeopathy is so I, I think shit on is one it's very cheap uh, you can make a remedy and give a, a month's worth of a remedy for around six or seven U.S. dollars. Right. Um, it requires an extensive interview of that person in their life. Right. So I would say to really even find a, a basic constitutional remedy, you're looking at three hours of your time. Yeah. And you're also relying upon trying to get good information from the person and also really thinking through the multiple levels of presentation. But if you look at the materia medicas of homeopathy as opposed to like strict herbs or Chinese medicines, you'll see that they're multidimensional. So they'll have emotional effects, spiritual. They'll be very much about time of day. Like the symptom categories are very specific and varied and it makes it really hard to do. And that's why I think someone with my background from literary studies, I like it because it's like almost reading literature and extracting themes mm. and tropes. Yeah. But I have found it to be very effective. And a lot of the principles of, let's say, vaccination ideas come from homeopathy. They come from things called no-sode remedies which is where you take the pathogen, dilute it, you have a signature of it, and you expose the immune system to it. So where do you come down on the, the whole vaccination controversy? You know, it's, it's very tricky. I try to be uh, nuanced in how I talk about it. In my opinion, I think that you should know your genomic status and that of your child before you agree to be vaccinated or have that child vaccinated because the quality of your methylation patterns and your methylation abilities have a large determinant factor on how you're going to react to the vaccine. And what is methylization? Methylation is a methylation. process that occurs a trillion times a day in the body and every cell. And it's essentially the silencing of DNA, but it's much more than that. I say that it's responsible for what we look like, who we are, how we think everything. I consider our body's mechanic and it basically, operates with the donation of what's called methyl groups these additional hydrogen atoms that are tagged onto locations of the genetic material to cause different effects mm. uh, to cause enzymatic reactions and things of that nature um, it's a nutritional pathway that's why it's hackable so all the genomic stuff that people are getting through 23andme in those places are essentially um looking at a lot of the methylation genes i look at a lot more than that but there it looks at that because ostensibly the idea is the more we look at it we might be able to treat some of these genetic polymorphisms but it's really important and so to methylate well let's say you get exposed to a herpes family virus from a partner and let's say you methylate really well and you have abundant methylation uh capacities you might not acquire that affection because you can prevent it from being crossing or you can keep it silenced or let's say you inquire it but you never manifest it um, so that's an example so you're getting viral materials you're also getting a lot of adulterants and the most important one is aluminum aluminum easily crosses the blood-brain barrier mm. and so there's a prominent fda scientist that came out a month ago against vaccinations and i can't remember his name it was in a, a online periodical called the medium and there's aluminum in the vaccination yeah, absolutely all of them uh in the united and our cookware everything yeah water in our american culture we have we've scheduled kids zero to 18 to have 70 vaccinations and when i was a kid it was what 15 or yeah. 20 or something it's yeah. it's, it's beyond that if you look at like gardasil and some of these other things that people have horrific reactions to you know you have to ask yourself but i've seen that children that don't methylate well 
they have vaccination reactions. Um, they tend to sequester metals more easily, or let's say they have streptococcus or other mm. bacterial infections that are symbionts for these metals. You see other things, but there's an FDA scientist, and I would advise people to read the article. It's called like the lone scientist that came out of FDA scientists that came out against vaccines. He might end up, you know, somewhere that, after coming out, but he looked more at the aluminum. But I've seen effects to say that like the MMR causes autism is not an accurate statement because it can be a factor. And, it and can, by the way, it's not what the, the guy in the UK said, right? No. What was his name? The famous case of the guy who got drummed out of medicine. Yeah, I forget uh, his name. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, I went back and looked at that because it's something Nomi and I have talked to. Yeah. She's very interested in this. and. Uh, he never said that uh, vaccines caused autism. No. He just noted a correlation in a population that he was studying, and that was it. Yeah, and it's, that's exactly what it is. But I would say that if it is a correlative factor, you may want to look at the decision-making around choosing that. And that gets into biopolitics and some of my, my bigger interests. Um, and there's other things like glycophosphate, for instance. I've seen a lot of studies that say it doesn't do anything. And then if you look at other elements of the study, it's absolutely modifying gene activity. So Glycophosphate is part Roundup. of the Roundup thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and another ubiquitous hormone modulating, disrupting sort of thing that's, that's everywhere. By the way, this podcast is brought to you by Monsanto, <laughs> bringing good things to life. Or, or who's, who does that? Someone else brings good things to life. Yeah. Exxon. All of our corporate sponsors. Uh. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's all you should do. Each each episode should be brought to you by some other company. I'll get sued, though, probably. Probably, if yeah. The, if I get a big enough audience, they'll come and kill Absolutely. me or sue me. Or Absolutely. That's why you got to stay on the move. They'll, they'll dig up my, my past sexual peccadillos. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the vaccine question is complicated. Uh, there's lots of problematics behind it. There's the idea of herd immunity for that stuff to really be effective every member of that population should be vaccinated then it's questionable whether or not it's going to be effective and then you look at flu vaccines you know at one point this year's was 10 percent effective and then they came up with this magical 36 percent i use a homeopathic flu vaccine that works remarkable that prevents it right the flu vaccine is based on last year's yeah, virus absolutely. and the virus is different every and year. the one that really has been hammering the u.s is an australian flu so yeah, there's a lot of problems. And then if you look at vaccines and genetics, you also there's emerging fields looking at it geographically. Like, let's say I have this collection of single nucleotide polymorphisms and I live in Texas or I live in Montana. Where is it more of a problem? Right. Mm. Um, and it's likely going to be a problem anywhere where there's industrial activity, air pollution, mm. um, more human sort of activity differences in, in sunlight, sunlight, exactly. Yeah. And stress levels and right. density. So there's a lot, but I think there's, you know, my, my thing is not so much, should we not vaccinate, but should we have the right to, to choose to not to vaccinate? Uh, because it's, yeah. to me, it's all about biopolitics. And when I look at the efficacy of these things, they'll talk about, there's no polio. We have very few, um, MMR cases, even though measles flared up and they blamed all the anti-vaxxers. I wouldn't describe myself as an anti-vaxxer because I don't necessarily think they understand the mechanism and how it works in the body and all of that but i thought i think that people are unfairly coming down on them in a lot of ways are, but if you don't vaccinate your kids are you not increasing risk for other people it depends uh, i mean not for the other kids who are vaccinated theoretically right because they're immune but to people with Im compromised immune systems right you go to the grocery store your kids got this fucking 
pathogen the you know some old lady touches him the old lady's you know got a liver transplant and now she's dead because your kid didn't get a vaccine yeah i mean there's that argument i would say that can that happen based on a, a lack of total vaccination of a population yeah probably but that person's likely to acquire something from somewhere else i've also seen people with flu vaccines that basically give rise to mutated flu viruses that mm. make people who are naturally resistant to the flu very sick right so it's right it's so problematic it cuts both ways the infectious you know direction can go both ways um but i just wonder about the efficacy and, and if you think about the body uh, the junk DNA, for instance, uh, what, what is really has more of an administrative, calibrative aspect in the body, makes registrations of infection. So like when a child, for instance, has an ear infection and you don't treat, most ear infections are viral as we know that, but most of them are treated antibiotically. If you allow that child that three, two, three days of discomfort and the immune system clears it, they're very unlikely to have a follow-up ear infection. If they have it treated immediately, they're very likely to have multiple ear infections. So why would an antibiotic be func have any uh, function in a viral infection? It doesn't. It doesn't. So why are they treated? Because I think it's just people come in, they're d uncomfortable. We have this metaphor of a pill that right. we can take that's going to make that go away. And let's say, for instance, maybe you have some other bacterial underlying like a strep in your body and you're giving a broad squale Leviquin right. that's going to wipe out. Can you maybe get a foothold on a viral problem if you knock back a bacterial problem? Yeah, a little bit. You have more immune resources. But you're also fucking up the Absolutely. microbiome. But yeah. there's now, if you notice, they sneak it in during the Super Bowl and big events, you'll start to see there's a new commercial about the responsible prescribing of antibiotics that mm. I'm starting to see through the CDC. Yeah. Um, I hope they send it to fucking chicken farmers. Yeah. So that's yeah. the other thing, right? The, the pass-throughs. But when you look at the body and the dynamics and how the body has immunity, how it gathers it, a lot of it is having the right nutritional components, having this kind of stress control in, the, in your life, but also allowing the body to experience the environment and make note of the external environment right. and our body, body does keep signatures of things hmm. so like the cas9 enzymes for this crispr editing that we're seeing those were for bacteria viruses are, are the number one predator right you get a viral infection as a bacteria you're done if you survive it you want to take a snapshot of it so that area of the crispr or sort of the bacterial genome stored those those sort of registrations of those viruses so that when they came through the next time they could molecularly scissor that virus apart so we're using that to kind of edit our genome right now but our own junk dna has elements of that and then there's things like uh when you're in fasted versus uh, sorry eating states heart, your immune system operates differently let's say you ex ex you encounter a flu bug and you mount an immune response and you allow the fever to come on and you allow yourself to go through the sort of this, the hard parts of it. There's a lot of things that occur. The T B cells recognize the T cells come in and specialize and there's these immune complexes that have to be cleared. So there's a lot of ways when we are eating all the time and our circadian biology is interrupted that these things become more problematic because the body has all these clearance mechanisms. There's multiple levels of clearance mm. and it's not just the immune system. There's autophagy and these cell regulation pro uh, processes that all elegantly sort of take their turn to get rid of these things. Um, and then there's a bunch of genetic things that I've seen, for instance, around the gut, there's a, a, a gene that secretes a oligosaccharide in the gut that 
makes people lysine deficient. And those people tend to acquire multiple herpes family infections. They'll get HSV-1, 2, they'll get zoster, um, and things like that. So having genetics, like those are other ways to determine. Yeah, is lysine the, the th- sort of thin white layer on the inside of the intestines that protects against uh, the the enzymes attacking the tissue there, there's multiple there's the the glutamines lysines glycines uh, all those there's a bunch of amino acids uh, at play in forming that, that jeff was talking design. about that i think yeah he recommended we were talking about fiber obviously dietary fiber he's very interested in that because it it, it promotes growth of the microbiome healthy microbiome and he recommended um i forget like not regular fiber uh it was a particular resistant star probably it was made from made from uh some kind of yams or something oh shit i forget what it was mm-hmm. yeah sorry I, I i thought it would come to me as i was talking and it didn't yeah um but so so we're pretty deep in the weeds here and a lot of people are listening to this and going i don't know what they're talking about absolutely um so let, let's get practical you're you're a healer is that, would, is that do i mean i i i would say that i wouldn't like say that out all right loud, that's what that, i've heard I, I, that's I mean, what i've heard yeah I, I mean i do i guess healing you're work. a consultant health consultant yeah. maybe is that yeah. a, i mean that's you're not pretending to be a doctor no. you're not telling anyone you've got any license i or call anything. myself a biohacker okay and under that you know i i will use things that maybe indigenous folks will do there could be energy work at play but then i can do orthomolecular and other types of stuff right biohacker is what i uh, designate myself as because it is a a term that hasn't had great definition and it allows a certain freedom Um, and i also for me we are learning to hack the system of the body in purposeful ways to change the states although hack is a funny word right because hack means as i understand it it means to use something for a purpose other than its intended design indicates it can be like kind of a remixing effect right you hack a program that means you get in and change things that the designers didn't really necessarily want you to do whereas what you're really talking about is getting the body back toward its intended or it's more in alignment with its evolved design yeah i mean that's a good point so when i talk about hacking i really do lean into like mckenzie wark and the the people that wrote the hackers manifesto for me, biohacking is taking medicine into your hands and choosing to intervene with your own body mm. without asking for directions on how to do it. So it's very political in some ways how I use it. And hacking to me and the knowledge generated by hacking is a type of intellectual property that hasn't been commodified entirely yet. And so I look at it very much in the computer hacker way mm. and, and that biohackers, and I'm not talking about Dave Asprey and the people that have created bulletproof coffee as a sort of capital circuit around biohacking i'm talking about people that are doing homebrewed gene editing or the person that has als and decides to do their own fecal transplantation um where you're doing things that are tools that are kind of taken off limits not most of what i do isn't off limits or illegal in any way but um it's very purposeful and right. and when i look at the body oftentimes there there's glitches i look at the genome as having glitches i look at poor health as being a glitch or a bioregulatory uh, crash and that hacking is a way to go back in and gain access to those softwares epigenetically and try to turn them around right right. Um, so i do use it very specifically but generally speaking yeah like the term is super loose and it has very poor definition and it, it now tends to be associated with a couple of people and it's split between what i would consider the biopunks body modification grinders 
um, that are doing, you know, implanting different devices and editing their genome. And then there's the people that are kind of looking to optimize and do less with or more with less. I want to sleep five hours a night, but be this high powered executive. And I want to do everything I can to offset the damage, right? I'm not at all aligned with that type of biohacking. I'm looking at it as the majority of folks that I work with, myself included, had no success working with what was out there to govern or direct us in restoring health. So mm. to me, it's going and doing interdisciplinary research and getting a different opinion and then trying it out. Yeah. Very N equals one epistemological uh, different uh, practice that tends to be rooted in other things. And ironically, a lot of what I do is already common practice in functional medicine in Europe and India, right? So it's not all that different, but it is a very, uh, not profound, but it's a very directed form of hacking. What do you think if you had to, you know, in a elevator pitch sort of way, if you had to name three things that uh, people could do to improve their health, um, you know, three simple things that don't involve, you know, getting genetic analysis and all that intermittent fasting. Is, is that a, do you think, cause that gives the body the, the chance to clear the more that I see, the more that I think condensed window eating is the right thing in a dermal window. So just inter- explain that. And I'll yeah. explain it. So intermittent fasting and uh, many people are going to be familiar with the different varieties of that uh, often it involves skipping breakfast they will tell you that autophagic processes are greater in the morning right well that's not exactly true condensed window eating is a form of eating that gives you a number of hours in fasting but it's not the same as intermittent fasting and it comes from Sachin panda's research is really they've done a lot of work on it lately at scripps institute and for me, that looks like eating between in La Jolla or in La Jolla. Oh. Um, it, it's more eating while the sun is out. So in the winter, your window is probably eight to four. And as you have more sunlight availability, your window can grow a little bit into the evening. But the idea is that your cell clocks are all modulated by light dark cycles. They're photoperiod dominant types of responses. Let's say the sunlight goes down and your insulin sensitivity changes and the organs uh, downregulate and different pathways are activated to essentially clean up the mitochondrial damage that's occurred from eating and living. And let's say you eat after the sun went down. Well, we now know that the liver, for instance, um, the peripheral clocks will flip on and then the cell clocks will see that and kind of freak out. And we know that the uh, me- that melatonin makes the body a little insulin resistant in some ways. So that when you start to eat outside of those dernal windows, you start to damage the body. No, wait a minute. You're talking to a dude who spent most of his life in Spain where dinner yeah. is 1030 p.m. Absolutely. You telling me I got to change that? Well, what the research is showing and what my most of the folks that I work with now eat in these condensed windows um, I just think that th- people can get away with that. And when we talked about genetic adaptation, are people in European cultures, uh, genetics handling food differently? Probably so. Mm. But if you look at folks that maybe come from, let's say, the U.S. or other places and try to pull off that, right. I, I don't know if the effects would be the same. It's just right. like, a lot. generally speaking, grains, dairy, and, and sugar restriction tends to generate really good health. Mm. Um that being said, let's say you're in a culture that ate lots of grains or like the Indian subcontinent where there's mostly vegetarian. So there's a lot of nuances yeah. to this. But what I've yeah. seen is that physiologically, the body is designed to eat in those dernal windows. And typically, you know, our ancestors, there was no night lighting. 
when the sun went down at five or six, you were kind of packing it in. You might've had some firelight, but you probably weren't out eating. Yeah. And you were probably eating in boom bust cycles where you were gorging and then carbohydrate intake from what I've seen is, is usually always higher when it's spring and summer. Mm. So typically our insulin and our seasonality uh, or the seasonality effects on the genome model those kind of seasonal curves. And so I've seen that getting people within those, they start to do better. Isn't it interesting that, you know, getting back to where we started this conversation with the supposed benefits of civilization, one of the major ones is consistency stability right that's like the the central value of civilization right like you've got a consistent source of food you got you can eat the same thing whenever you want and it turns out that's actually probably pretty bad for us where it's much better if we're tied into the fluctuations of seasons i've come to the to the conclusion that the middle path is not a middle path it's it's the it's the aggregate of highs and lows and highs and lows absolutely that's absolutely correct so when i talk to clients and they think that their genome is just totally trashed and i look at it and i think about the research and physics and just all the things i know it's like look if you were living in nature where food abundancy wasn't there and you had carbohydrate intake that was yoked to sunlight and our ancestors, for instance, pre-agriculture ate about 250 different plants, mostly foliage. Think of the micronutrient density, the soils, right. all the microbiota impacts. Right. That genetic snip uh, the, the, that you're looking at wouldn't have mattered because the epigenetic controls from the nature and the environment would have protected you. Right. So a lot of what I do is, is leaning into the five elements, sunlight, water, wind, being outside, letting your genome be modulated by what it was designed to. So when you ask for three things sleep you know preferably nine hours a night get away from the blue light eat in a dernal window and eat seasonally and and minimize anything that's high sugar high carbohydrate unless it's summertime and unless you're metabolically adapted to it and then the other thing is just to um, have some kind of mindfulness practice even if it's just a walk in nature or even something that if it's music or something to bring you there or cold showers that are being very popularized by Wim Hof. Right Wim Hof, he's been on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So I've the, been in a in an ice bath with Wim Hof. Actually, yeah. So those things I found that, and the electromagnetic effects of the body that are natural from the ground, those things do far more to generate health and supplements and 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 diet and kind of other things can do. So they're a big part of what I do. There's always biohacks like that or, that are required. And the folks that don't do those don't tend to have as good results, but yeah. I'm not the irony of all of this is a lot. I'm considered to be cutting edge and this guy that has these very innovative ideas at the end of the day, I'm just doing what we did like thousands of years ago. That's why it kind of makes me chuckle yeah. as I'm like, being out in the sun barefoot and eating when food was available and potentially having to work really hard to get food, that isn't technology. That was already set up. It's the opposite, it's of technology. the opposite of technology. Well, I see, this is a recurring theme in this podcast and in my thinking in general, that it feels to me like the trajectory of civilization is an orbit. And we have just now past the whatever that point is where you turn back toward home because it seems like everything in psychology in relationships and in nutrition and so many things are like the next step is back absolutely the you want to understand 
you know how the body works look at hunter gatherers you want to understand the right diet look at hunter gatherers you want to look at you know relationships as in our case you know sexuality and all this you know you want to like psychological interventions look at shamanism look Mm -hmm. at the way you know plant medicines like everything seems to be like oh now the, the you know we're on our way back home Absolutely. I sure as fuck hope that's what's happening. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a huge trend towards that. But I also um, haven't been in the high-tech biohacking world, at least as an observer. Um, there's a lot of Ray Kurzweil types. And there, I went to several talks where you know, genetic engineering and all that was just being lauded. And this one woman literally said, and she's, if, what is the name of that place? They're in San Francisco. She's got a bunch of VC money. She's like, we're editing the genome to keep pace with the singularity. But what I wanted to say, and they wouldn't, I never got a chance to ask her a question is 40% of the genome is, is triggered by light in the environment and epigenetic factors in nature. When the singularity happens in those diverse reactions no longer exist you don't have survival you don't you can't edit your way out of that so it's a matter of whether or not there's a weeding out a mass weeding out of the people that believe in that and those that are into the return to origin well let let them cycling let them go to fucking mars man you know elon i love elon but he's full of shit i think as far as the the martian thing goes i you know we gotta fix shit here but those guys can go to mars leave us the planet you know and let us clean it up but i think what you're getting to i think more than anything is what you find if you're on a path of i i hate to just say spirituality because a lot of people have a problem with that term but let's say you're seeking something bigger than yourself or reconnection what you find out that the art of living comes from being creative within the constraints you're given Mm. um and you know i think of music i think of a piano the amount of creativity that can come out of a theoretically fixed set of things by people interacting with it in that way is unbelievable and i think about you know do we need to go back and and be exposed to rain and cold and be comfortable Mm -hmm. like that is that is that what the return looks like or is it not generating you know so many animal products that we throw out 70 percent of them or is Uh, it taking control of our population growth and reducing it to 50 million people and and people when you start thinking about that there's this big like sort of western liberal democratic ideal that gets thrown up when you talk about population control or respect of limits it's seen as an anti-freedom and it's I don't know if it necessarily is. The problem is now we have a bunch of people and it's kind of the the prisoner's dilemma at large. And I do think that it's very clear there's no evidence that we could survive population growth. And there's plenty of evidence that humans have lived in the envelope of nature with constraints very richly for many, many years, hundreds, if not hundreds of years. So. I kind of think, you know, I'm a hopeful person, but I also think there's probably going to be an apocalyptic collapse and what comes out of those ashes is going to be what I think is going to be something to look at. And I hope that it's a return to those boundaries. And I don't feel a loss of freedom that way. It feels good to eat, for instance, journaling. I remember when I started doing it again recently, my body was like, thank God you're stopping eating. Like, thank you. I don't mm. want to deal with this food. Right. I literally I need this, a break. This voice came in like, thank you. Mm. Um, and just the when I talk about the one point about homeopathy and when we talk about plant medicines, one of the reasons why I'm interested in homeopathy is we're running out of these sacred plants. 
the pressures of the West on those plants is depleting them in the wild. So I can take the same one ounce herbal tincture of like a lomatium root or some plant, I can turn it into a thousand remedies for a thousand people. So I'm looking at also conservation. Mm. And also like, do we have the right, for instance, to at what level can we consume even within that return to nature? Because we still have to be able to share those sacraments. Of course, at 50 million people, there's no end, right? Yeah. There's no exhaustion of resources. But I think a lot about that, and I think we are heading that way. And I think there's a ton of pressure from within and underneath and around of these dominant progress models that they're being infiltrated. And people are really unhappy. Yeah. And, there, and the, the school shootings and the amount of... Yeah that we've seen this last year, I do think we're in that Kali Yuga transformation and that we may see a better world, but it's whether or not we're going to survive our, our, our learning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is great, man. I'd love to continue this conversation Absolutely. for years to come if possible. Where can people find you? I have a website, cosmic animal with a K and that's the easiest way to find me. My email phones on there. I unfortunately I do have a Twitter account. It's at Cosmic Animal. Um, I'll be at Palu FX this year speaking mm-hmm. probably about biopolitics. Do you do the ancestral health thing as well? I have not. Yeah. I probably will do that at some point, but I tend to be around. I'm I'm open to talk to people, and if there's people looking for health consultation, go to the website, get in touch with me, and I'd be happy to to talk to you about your case. Cool. This episode of Tangentially Speaking is brought to you by CosmicAnimal.com with a K. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, man. Thank this you. This is great. Hey, uh, last question. How did you know I was an Aquarius? I uh, looked up your wig. <laughs> right. I'm an Aquarius, too, so we got we, we got to stick together. All right. All right. I thought maybe I, I gave it away somehow well, you, you behaviorally. Anyways, yeah. 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 All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ryan, Cosmic Animal with a K. Uh, I sure did, as you could probably tell. There are various ways you can support this podcast, should you choose to. Patreon.com is sort of the main way we're doing it these days. Uh, Yeah, you log on to Patreon and you search for Tangentially Speaking and boom, I pop up there. And you can say, I'd like to give this guy five bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever you think is appropriate and that you can afford it's wonderful it's appreciated very much keeps the wheels turning and the lights on and that's wonderful uh the other way you can support the podcast financially which costs you nothing is to use my amazon affiliate link oh what i said support the podcast i didn't mean that i mean support other things i do that aren't the podcast because amazon is not in any way affiliated with this podcast And I wouldn't want to create that impression. But you can click on that Amazon affiliate thing on my website. And that will take you to the Amazon page. And then anything you buy, uh, a percentage of that will go to support my hooker and coke fund. And uh, yeah, so that's a way to to support me. If you're in the U.S., the U.K., or Canada, other countries, that's not hooked up yet, 
I guess. Uh, the other thing you can do is write reviews. Like on iTunes, you can write a review of the podcast. You can also, if you have a copy of Tangentially Reading and you liked it, you can put a review of that on Amazon. That's cool. I think there are like 33 reviews so far. So the more of those we get, the better. It helps people, um, you know, push that button and get themselves a copy. The intro music is by Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. You can find more of their stuff at basinandrange.bandcamp.com. There's a Reddit site where people talk about the podcast, what they love, what they hate. I drop in there occasionally and answer questions and engage in conversations. There's a um, tspeaking.boardhost.com site for people who want to meet other people around them who listen to Tangentially Speaking, I highly recommend that you do that because you are all cool fucking people as far as I can tell. That's tspeaking.boardhost.com. And my mother said nobody ordered a t-shirt in the last few days and I should like really pitch them this week. So get your damn t-shirts from mom. Uh, you can see them all at my site, tangentiallyspeaking.com. Go to the store. You can see the shirts there. You can also use the discount code CTD, civilized to death, at shoredesigntshirts.com and you get 20% off anything you order. Oh, speaking of buying things, I just ordered a bunch of stickers. People have been writing saying, you should sell stickers, man. I want some stickers. So I got a civilized to death sticker, a tangentially speaking sticker, and I think there's another tangentially speaking sticker. So I'll post those pretty soon. They're pretty cool. Um, but we only got two of them so far. So I'll post a photo when I get the third one. What else? I guess that's it. I'm going to play you out as I almost always do with the song called Smoke Alarm by the great Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about her at carseyblanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E Blanton. And uh, you can also watch a very amusing 10-minute video about her father on YouTube. Just look up This American Life, Brad Blanton. Trust me, you will be amused and enlightened. Uh, here's to you, Bennett and Justin. Carpe diem while you can. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day
a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 